Can you open that right into the mic, actually, just so I can hear it? Yeah! Aria and I were just watching someone live stream Taylor Swift's concert. A couple of people. <laughs> A few people are doing that right now. 10.30 p.m. Someone else was streaming Spongebob, so that's the real hero to me, honestly. We also broke our stove yesterday. I'm glad you said we. <laughs> Why? Because it was you? It... All right. All right. All right. Here, 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 here. So you know when, like, when you're trying to open a jar, right? Mm-hmm. You're trying and you're trying and you're like, you can't get it. So you hand it off to the next person. No, because I open my jars first try Shut every the time. Fuck up. <laughs> and so, and then that person gets it, right? Mm-hmm. And then the original person, you know what they always say? Well, I loosened, I loosened it. it for you. And that's what you did. You loosened the fucking oven for I me. Did not. Who used I have used the oven once and the first time was yesterday. Well, if you didn't yank it like I a didn't like yank, a monkey. I literally just opened it. Like a gorilla. I literally just opened it and it fell apart. Hmm. Quite All literally, right. you used it maybe an hour prior to me. Who's to say that you didn't unloosen it? Okay, fine. Put it back and then made me look like a doofus. <laughs> You think I purposely sabotaged I think you? I purposely sabotaged you. I did not. Yesterday, everything was falling apart, and you just, you really wanted to, you to really just take you down a peg further. You, you really did want to take me down a peg further. I didn't, I promise. Ari's been going through it. So I'm going to cheer her up by making her record with me at 1030 at night. Thought that'd be good for you. Thank you. Kumquat, tiger. <laughs> so welcome to Geographic. My name's Alexis. Hi, I'm Aria. <laughs> Nice to see you all again. It's been a little over a week. It's been a little bit. Someone's Sorry, late. this episode is is late. I oh. know it is. <laughs> I got really caught up in the research for this one, so heads up. Fucking pages. This is yeah. I've got about thirty pages of notes, so heads up. This is gonna be three hours. It's long, gonna be guys. a long one. Tuck in. Before I get into it, I uh, I realized we're four episodes deep now. I realized for the past three episodes. I, I've completely forgotten to mention that this podcast do- does have an Instagram. <laughs> you forgot to. I did not announce your own fucking. I didn't announce it on officially on air, but now you all know it's at Geographic Podcast. No underscore, no period, all one word. No uppercase. No uppercase. No nothing at geographic podcast on instagram and i use it to post pictures relating to the episodes i'll share news or posts or stories no news get your head out of the gutter buddy but post stays in the gutter (laughs) but i'll post anything going on with nature and wildlife or anything related to the pod any updates like uh the fact that sometimes they're late so that was (laughs) that was on but I'll also use the Instagram as a way to connect intera- and interact with you guys, the listeners. So it'll be a good way for us to, to chat with each other. There's also a YouTube channel for the show. Wait, what? You can't find it right now because it doesn't actually have any videos. <laughs> I'm working on uploading either full episodes or just snippets. I'll let you know. I'll let you guys know when I figure that out. Or actually just tell me what you would prefer and I'll go by that. This is the People's Podcast. I'll do what you want. 
And then a little bit of nature news I just want to touch on really quick. Uh, Last week, a 6.8 magnitude earthquake struck Ecuador and part of Peru. Uh, Last I saw, I think about 15 people had died. Um, Something like three or 400 more were injured. Um, Of the people killed, all but one of them died in Ecuador. The other one died in Peru. There's been... I think it's something like 90 buildings destroyed or something like that. So really, really harrowing event. And para mis hermanos, hermanas, hermanes de Ecuador, de Latinoamérica, pensando en todos, rezando por todos, thinking of you guys, praying for you guys, really, truly hoping that it's going to be a quick and complete recovery soon. So this is the episode you were talking about last week, the kumquat tiger you've been looking forward to. So, oh, what? Just so the people know, mm-hmm. I'm a stand-in. <laughs> yeah. She didn't even want me on this That's episode. That's not true. She didn't even want me here. That's not true. I I'm, always want you here. I'm just, but I just want yes, to live here. This, this episode, you're helping me. I appreciate it. This episode was originally going to be with another one of my friends, Zara. Zara, if you're listening, shout out. Thank you for spending three hours with me. <laughs> While we both sat in silence and I continued to research. That was a uh, true trooper of it all. For real. She's a real one. Sh- mega shouts out to Zara. But um, her schedule uh, didn't allow for us to record this any sooner. So Arya's helping me out this week again. Thank okay. you, bestie. You got your brother and me. <laughs> and my mom. Your mom hasn't been on it yet. I wanted to get her on this one, but she didn't want to. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, let's talk about it. So... The star today in question, she's known as the Champawat tiger. She was a uh, Bengal tiger that lived in India. This one tigress was responsible for claiming... I'm not going to give you the number just yet. I'll tell you after. <laughs> but it's it's a lot. It's enough that she is considered the most prolific man-eater of all time. So let's talk about her. First of all, talking about Bengal tigers. So Bengal tigers also known as Panthera tigris tigris, or Panthera... <laughs> Why are you laughing? Tigris, tigris. Yeah. Panthera tigris just refers to tigers, I think. And uh, Panthera tigris tigris is specifically Bengals. I've also seen them called Panthera tigris bengalensis, but that, I think, is kind of outdated. They also used to be called royal Bengal tigers. The royal part's been dropped. They're just called Bengals now, or some people refer to them as Indian tigers. They fall within class mammalia, Order Carnivora, Family Felidae, Genus Panthera, as I said, species name, Panthera tigris tigris. Uh, the genus name, Panthera, is derived from a Latin word, Panthera, and the Greek word, Panther. That's not how you pronounce them. There's little accents over a few letters in that. But both of these words can be roughly translated to that which is hunted. It could also be derived from a Sanskrit word, Pandara, Pandara which means pale, yellow, whitish, or white. So I'm going to take you back to the beginning um, of history. Um, <laughs> so tigers and all modern carnivores as we know them are theorized to be descended from a little animal called, or a little species called myacids, which looked like little ferrety, weaselly creatures. Uh, these are primitive carnivores that lived around 62 million years ago during the Paleocene Epoch of the early Cenozoic Era. If it sounds like I'm speaking in tongues right now, <laughs> the Cenozoic Era follows the Cretaceous mass extinction event at the end of the Mesozoic Era, a.k.a. Uh, Ooh, dinosaurs dead. the curtain on dinosaurs, yeah. 
So Cenozoic just kind of refers to the dawn of mammals. Uh, Myacids, they would later branch off into the order Carnivora, and around 40, 50 to 40 million years ago, Carnivora would split into two groups, Caniformia and Filiformia. And as you can imagine, Caniformia refers to carnivores that are more dog-like. Filiformia refers to the carnivores that are more cat-like. And uh, another group, Felidae, would evolve from Filiformia. Felidae was then split into three subfamilies, Pantherinae, Felinae, and Machyridontinae. Machyridontinae does not exist anymore, uh, but this group included the saber cats, such as Smilodon, which is the state fossil of California. A Smilodon? Mm-hmm. The saber-toothed tiger? Yeah. But all genera of Machyridontinae are now extinct. They died out about ten to 20,000 years ago. So I, I just mentioned them because I think it's kind of a misconception that modern tigers are descended from them just because they have the word tiger in the name. They're not. They're like distant cousins, kind of. Uh, tigers fall within the family Pantherinae. And this includes all the big five of the big cats, which is your lions, leopards, snow leopards, jaguars, and of course, tigers. Felinae just includes all other cat species that are not considered big cats. Cheetahs mountain lions, house cats, everything else. Uh, the earliest tigers seem to first appear in the fossil record around 2 million years ago, near the end of the Pliocene, early Pleistocene. And these were found in modern-day Siberia and northern China. It's theorized tigers first arrived in India around 12,000 years ago, during the Pleistocene Epoch, a.k.a. the Ice Age. Now, i got to bring the room down a little bit. There were originally nine recognized subspecies of tiger. Three are now extinct. Slay. One is one is extinct in the wild and exists only in captivity. The Javan tiger, Bali tiger, and Caspian tiger all disappeared due to habitat destruction and overhunting. And I know I'm throwing out big numbers like 2 million years ago, 12,000, 10,000. These three subspecies went extinct by the mid to late 20th century. Whoa. So within the past 100 years, three species of tiger were wiped out. It's really troubling because the Caspian tiger once inhabited a huge range that spanned all the way from Turkey and Iran to China and Russia. And they killed all of them? Yeah, they're all gone. What? What did they need them for? Five, I'll tell you. I will tell you all about it. Caspian tiger for? (laughs) What did you need all of them for? For real? There's no fucking way. Yeah. It is the South China tiger that has not been directly observed in the wild since the 1970s. So it's considered extinct in the wild. They live only in captivity now. Where can I find one? Really unfortunate. Uh, I don't know. South China? All right. South Chinese zoos? Cool. YouTube videos? I don't know. Okay. Then there is the Amur or Siberian tiger. Ooh. We talked about those guys in the bear episode. Because they eat eat bears. (laughs) There's the Indo-Chinese tiger, the Sumatran tiger, which I think is the smallest of the subspecies. That's the one that we have at the zoo, is the Sumatran tiger. Really? Yeah. Sumatran tiger, Malayan tiger, and of course, Bengal tiger all still exist today, albeit in reduced numbers and inhabiting only a fraction of their historic ranges. Uh, Bengals today do inhabit ranges all across the Indian subcontinent. So, of course, India, Bhutan, Bangladesh, and Nepal. Tigers are like a... Like an Asian thing, right? Yeah, they're found all throughout Asia. Um, I think that there were some populations in, like, I want to say it was Laos, Cambodia, and Vietnam that are 
I think they're all extinct by now, which is really unfortunate, or, or at least nearing extinction. Their populations are extremely diminished. But yes, tigers are found all throughout Asia. Are there anywhere? Are they anywhere else? Like, are they in? I know they're not in the continental United States. But no. Like, but like, what about South America? Mm-mm. No. None. The only big cat in South America is the uh, jaguar. Huh. Weird. I think maybe leopard. Weird. No, leopards are African and Asian. Yeah, I think just the jaguar. That is so weird. It's really weird. Yeah. So, what makes a tiger a tiger? Stripes. Well, that's one. <laughs> big paws. All right. <laughs> um, sharp teeth, big head. Uh, sharp teeth, a good one, actually. I'll talk about their teeth because they're really important. One of the sources, uh, it's called Tigers of the World, the Science, Politics, and Conservation of Panthera tigris. There was a sentence in there that I just had to include in this section. It says, quote, to my admittedly biased eye, tigers are perfect. <laughs> I agree. They're speaking like in a biological sense, but I'm speaking in an everything sense. I think all cats are perfect, wonderful animals. That's a lie. My cat pissed all over your clothes. That is a lie. And my cat screams in the background of my podcast and tries to eat your snake. So, uh, But you're right. Tigers do have stripes. Um, their fur color ranges from like a pale yellow to a dark reddish with a white underside and white facial markings. This is in keeping with something that I've, I learned about while researching this called Glogger's Rule. Glogger's Rule? Glogger's Rule? It basically just says that organisms in humid climates are more pigmented than those compared to uh, those in arid climates. So darker tigers are generally found in humid tropical forests, and paler tigers are usually found in like less humid temperate forests and grasslands. That makes sense for camouflage. It does, yeah. Um, generally, Bengal tigers seem to be a little bit lighter in color. Wait, what's a white tiger? Wow, that's my next bullet point, literally. Oh. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Bestie wavelength? No, that's perfect. My bad. <laughs> that's, no, that's perfect. I was just like, uh, white tigers? <laughs> Where are they? They are Bengal tigers, actually. What? So white Bengal tigers are, they're not albino, and they're not leucistic. Albino being the complete absence of pigment. Leucistic is the partial absence of pigment. They actually possess a recessive gene, a mutation, that turns them white. What? Mm -hmm. I don't know if this occurs in other tigers or just bangles. I only saw it in bangles when I was researching, but then again, I was only looking for bangle info. So um, They're pretty rare in the wild, but they're found a lot in captivity because of, you know, they're very striking looking. So a lot of people uh, will breed them. To be part of things like private zoos, which is I feel like I've seen so many white tigers. Yeah, they're uh, unfortunately good for photo ops because they are so pretty. But the problem with breeding them in captivity and this gene being recessive is that leads to inbreeding, which is really bad. One of the traits of inbreeding will be crossed eyes. Uh, Crossed eyes. You'll see a lot of white tigers that have cross eyes. And I know, I know what you're probably thinking. Orange is a pretty silly color for an ambush predator. <laughs> kind of silly, goofy. Not if they're at the top of the food chain. Uh, f- fair enough, but... <laughs> Who, huh, who's going to try attacking a tiger? <laughs> Very fair. It doesn't look like... It doesn't get what they look like. They don't have any natural predators that for I could real. see. So, so it doesn't really matter what they look well, like. Well, actually... They're beautiful. <laughs> I mean, except 
people. Well, you have to think, though, it's not necessarily that something's going to attack them. It's that their prey is adapted to get away from tigers. So they need to counteract Ah. that. So even though their coat appears orange to us, their prey perceive colors differently than ours do, than our eyes do. So what is orange in our eyes is actually green for their prey. What? Yeah. Dude, that's so, so baller. That is. That I is saw. So I need, I'm gonna post a picture of the, like the side by side of tiger to us and a tiger to prey items because yeah, it's like it's crazy. And like you said, they have that iconic striped pattern that can be a dark brown to black in color, and it covers their entire body from face to tail. And uh, I found out no two tiger stripes are the same. Each and every tiger uh, in the world has a unique stripe pattern. It's like a fingerprint. Even their skin is striped, which was crazy to see. I can't find it. Sorry. Continue. I saw it in an oh, article. Wait. Oh. Is it? Oh, yeah. that's that's awful. That's so scary. That is so awful. <laughs> Dude, I think I just screamed into your mic. I'm so sorry. That it's is okay. so scary. That is so scary. Dude, where is that thing? <laughs> oh my god. Yeah. Yeah. I'm suddenly really uncomfortable. Really scared of tigers now? <laughs> Don't be. They barely attack people, even though I'm telling you the story of one that attacked a lot of people. Uh, but their unique stripes are really useful for uh, census and research purposes for scientists, and they're also very useful for camouflage. Um, the stripes help to disrupt the body's outline, and they also resemble like shadows playing across the forest floor. So that combined with the green color they appear to their prey it's like it's not even there it's so scary it is invisible i know my sweet lord they do have uh small rounded ears with white spots on the back that might sound like a weird thing (laughs) thank you for imitating it for me (laughs) that might sound like a weird thing to mention but i bring it up because those white spots on the back of their ears are also known as eye spots um i've seen them called predator spots and flashes it's believed that they are meant to resemble eyes so that if any potential predators are approaching from behind, it looks like the tiger is facing them. So this is a means to intimidate uh, anything that could sneak up on it. Are you looking it up? Ew! <laughs> Ew! Yeah. Ew. If you look at a tiger from the back. Oh my God. With the perception. Sh- oh my God. Cause their shoulder blades. It- oh, <laughs> Their shoulder blades make it look like it. it I, I can't even like describe how scary that looks. That's just like it. It went from like a normal sized tiger, right? Yeah. To like a massive mega tiger. A mega fucking massive yep. tiger. Mm-hmm. Cause that looks like the side of his head. Yeah. That's a whole. That it's a whole fucking head. Is it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, when you look at a tiger from the back with the knowledge that those are supposed to be like, or like from false above, eyes an above, or from above, above. yeah, yeah it's, that's what I'm oh. it's a little frightening. It's a little you guys just Google tiger ears, <laughs> it's a little unnerving. Oh my sweet <laughs> I don't want to be I'm this not, I'm not trying to scare you, itches, I'm trying man. to make you love tigers. Um, although you're probably gonna hate this next thing about tigers. Um, <laughs> so similar to kind of similar to the eyes that the fake eyes they have in the back of their heads apparently in a lot of places where people coexist with tigers um because there oh, are a lot of places you told me this yeah mm. um 
typically it's going to be like rural communities where going out into the fields is a big part of everyday work. And in order to avoid being, you know, potentially attacked by a tiger, like I said, it doesn't happen often, but it can. Um, a safeguard people will take is attaching a mask to the back of their head because tigers attack from behind and they will not attack if it look or they're less prone to attack if it looks like um, their prey is looking in their direction. That's really funny. That's kind it's of just, funny. It's just two predators that don't want to look at each they're other's just eyes. looking at each other. And he looks at me. And I look at him. <laughs> but in fact, they're not looking at each other at they're all. They're not. <laughs> <laughs> so, anyway. And I probably don't have to tell you, but tigers are big. Um, no way. <laughs> they're generally believed to be the largest extant cat species. They kind of, it's kind of a toss-up between them and lions, but... For the most part, I see people agree that tigers are are uh, the big ones. Bang. What? Yeah. Tigers are huge. No, I don't know. Connor at the zoo looks a lot smaller. He's a Sumatran tiger is why. Oh. I'm talking about bangles. Well. They're banging, I guess. Bang. Well. How big? Um, well, bangles are considered the second largest after Siberian tigers, which are the largest. Are those white? No. Ah, I don't know. What? How do you not know? Well, I mean, I don't know if they can be white. They're orange, but I don't know if they can also be white. But adult female bangles can be anywhere from seven and a half to eight feet long from nose to tail. And they can weigh between about 350 to 400 pounds is where they seem to cap. Yep. 400 pounds? Yep. Adult males can exceed nine feet in length and weigh well over 500 pounds. Larger individuals have been recorded as weighing up to 700 pounds. I can't even fathom that. I can't either. <laughs> the largest ever recorded was one that was uh, hunted and killed in 1967. It was a male Bengal. He weighed 857 pounds. Dude, what was he eating? And was over 11 feet long. What was he eating? Its paws were reportedly the size of dinner plates. <laughs> <laughs> That's a big cat. Uh, now, a couple of things that make tigers really excellent, efficient predators. For one, their hind legs are slightly longer than their front legs. This allows them to jump really great distances, both horizontally and vertically. There was an incident recorded in Nepal in 1974. Uh, a tigress that was protecting her cubs, because tigress, tigresses are fiercely protective of their babies. They will defend them to the death. But this tigress was able to maul a researcher that was hiding in a tree 15 feet above her. Oh my god. Yep. Uh, Tatiana, the the Siberian tiger that was involved in the San Francisco Zoo tiger attack, she leaped over a 13-foot barrier that surrounded her enclosure. <laughs> nice. There are stories of Bengal tigers pulling British generals from the tops of elephants they would ride. By the way... That's kind of a sleigh. That's kind of a sleigh. Fuck them colonizers. <laughs> colonizers. This is a... This is not a colonizer safe space. I'll say that. I'll let you know. We've been over this. We have. That's true. Yeah. No, it was in the last episode. But we love we touched Mr. On Budson. It. Yeah. Mr. Budson. Mr. Robinson. Mr. Bud Robinson. Budson. <laughs> he can stay. Um, but Indian elephants can be about 9 to 11 feet tall. So that's a jump. There is a video as well. I'll send it to you. It scared the shit out of me. Um, one, because when I played it, my speakers were on full blast and I wasn't expecting a tiger roar to be the first thing that would happen. So it made me jump a little bit. But there's a video of um, 
it's these guys who are with some organization in India who go to deal with problem tigers. And the way that they typically do this. Problem tigers? Yeah. So like a tiger that's attacking livestock, people. Um, generally, they're encouraged to try to tranquilize them and remove them from the wild before or relocate them before attempting to kill them. So they're out there on top of their elephants holding their tranquilizers and the camera is panning. It's also, I think the video is from like 2004, so it's a really grainy video, but the camera is just like panning across this massive grassland. You could see like the tree line in the background and there's a guy who's sitting in front of the cameraman who's kind of looking at a certain patch of grass to the right of them and out of nowhere, literally this cat materializes from the grass jumps clean over the elephant and swipes at this guy doesn't kill him but it fucks up his hand something awful i think it took some fingers that that's giving like that scary clown video with the car which one you know where the car it's like it looks like a car commercial it's like driving down this little mountain and then it goes behind some trees and then boom jump scare oh my god that's fucked up yeah it's a commercial no, it's like a goofy little thing oh. that my fucking uncle uh, <coughs> played for me as a child, and I screamed bloody that murder. That sucks. Your it's uncle like sucks. It's like an iconic, like, video. Like one of those jump scare videos? It was literally, like, the most iconic jump wow. scare video. I don't remember that. But well, yeah. obviously your brother was much kinder to you. <laughs> well, no, because he made me play the maze game. It's the same thing. Yeah. So, um... That's scary, by the way. Yeah, that's really scary. Yeah, I don't like that. So, they can jump... Very high, and they have a lot of power behind those jumps. It's kind of a miracle that worse didn't happen to this dude who got attacked. I think the tiger bit him. If it got his claws into him, that would also be very bad, because they have very large uh, retractable claws, which makes them very pretty competent climbers and very proficient in catching prey. They have a swipe powerful enough that it is capable of breaking the neck of an Indian bison and... Uh, caving in its skull. Just one hit? Yep. One smack? One good smack. Jeez. And allegedly, they can also decapitate a human in a single blow. Well, you know, that's not that bad. Not that bad? It's just in one go. <laughs> it is one swipe and I done. think that any animal that can take your fucking head off in one swipe is not, like, definitely not something I would want to trifle with. Like, if it comes down to it, I'd rather get one swipe than being mauled by a tiger. Yeah, sure. And, uh... It's just a personal preference. Yeah, like, no, that's fair. Rather? That's very fair. Well, I mean, they'll kill you quicker than a, than a bear will, which is nice, but... Good God. If they don't get you with their uh, crazy hops or their big old claws, they are capable of sprinting in short bursts of <laughs> speeds up to nearly 40 miles per hour. <laughs> It's really crazy that such a large cat can be so agile and move so fast. It's kind of crazy that such a large, scary, fearful <laughs> animal just can exist. Yeah. <laughs> they don't prey on humans, though. Not usually. Except for these people. Except for these. Unfortunate souls. Yeah. Um, I forgot to mention that they can horizontally jump about 20 to 30 feet. Wait, what? So even if they don't uh, initially catch you in that first sprint, if you, by some miracle, get ahead of it, uh, it can close that distance in about two seconds with one jump. So <laughs> they also have the largest canine, like canine teeth, the big, sharp, pointy teeth uh, on the side of your incisors. 
They have the largest canine teeth of any living feline. These teeth measure up to four inches from the gun line. For reference, I have an iPhone 11. This is about, I think, like almost six inches. So a tiger's tooth, it's like five and a half, I think. So a tiger's tooth is about there. And that looks, that might look kind of small, but you have to remember that tooth is going to, there's that much of something is going to pierce you somewhere. Yeah, that thing is going straight through my hand. Straight through your hand, straight through your neck. That's going straight to my heart. Yep. Especially since they can also exert a bite force of approximately a thousand pounds of pressure per square inch. That makes it one of the strongest bites of any cat species. They've been known to rip the bumpers off of cars. Nice. Yeah. And they will use these powerful jaws to fatally bite through the uh, through the throat and crush the windpipe, which suffocates their prey, or they will uh, sever the spinal cord, which also can result in paralysis and you stop breathing on your own, which also suffocates you. So it's it's fast, but it's just gnarly. And they have these large teeth because they're an, ad- an adaptation to large prey like water buffalo and sandbar deer. And water buffalo can weigh up to 3,000 pounds. So in a book that I got a lot of information from, it's called No Beast So Fierce by uh, Dane Hucklebridge. He has a really great, great quote that I wanted to include about just the sheer brick shithouse capabilities of a tiger. So he says, quote, Indeed, when one considers the raw physics of a collision with a five to 600 pound body moving at 40 miles an hour, the equation starts to feel less like one belonging to the natural world and more akin to that of the automotive. Only this Subaru is camouflaged, all terrain, and has one hell of a klaxon, not to mention a grill bristling with meat hooks and steak knives. End quote. Damn, that was. Tiger that, was, that was pretty good, Mr. Hucklebridge. <laughs> Thankfully, we don't have to worry about any of that because we live in San Diego and these tigers live in tropical, subtropical, and temperate forests throughout Asia. They are uh, solitary. They will typically only, you'll only see multiple tigers in one place when it's, when they're mating, when they have cubs. Very rarely, they will cooperate to take down large prey. That is very rare. Sometimes they will all congregate on one feeding spot if it's a large enough animal. They are nocturnal and they are ambush predators. And like all cats, they are obligate carnivores, which means that their bodies are adapted to an all meat diet. They're excellent nighttime predators because they have padded feet, which makes them nearly silent, very acute night vision, uh, a hearing range that allows them to hear saliva being swallowed and wind being exhaled or breath being exhaled through the nostrils they can hear that they're also covered in five different types of whiskers that allow them to easily um, navigate and interpret their environment again highly evolved highly efficient predators i don't like this well you'll be you'll be surprised to know that only about one in 20 hunts are successful and a tiger will usually only average one large meal a week this is how it kind of always goes with larger cat species they're they're very well designed to hunt and kill, but their prey is designed to avoid being hunted and killed. So kind of a trade-off. They will cover large expanses of hunting ground quickly by taking advantage of roads, game trails, riverbeds, gullies. So they're smart. They're able to cross very wide distances in a very short amount of time. How they hunt is they will stalk their prey from dense cover 
They'll stalk it for a little while. Once it turns its back to it or kind of breaks sight line of where the tiger would be, the tiger explodes from the underbush and pounces on their prey. Sometimes, I found, this attack will be accompanied by a roar that registers at 114 decibels. How loud is that? Hucklebridge says that's about 25 times louder than a gas-powered lawnmower. Uh-huh. And it can be heard up to three kilometers away, which uh-huh. is about two miles. Lawnmowers are already loud. Loud, yeah. In a lot of movies, actually, well, in most movies, um, whenever you hear a tiger roaring, it's usually, or no, whenever you hear a lion roaring, it's usually a tiger's roar that's been dubbed over it. What? So in The Lion King, all the lion roars are tiger roars. That's kind of... Lions have, they don't really roar, they kind of like howl. <laughs> Howl? They go like, oh, kind of sound. Do they? But it's loud. Oh. Dude, that's like the little, that's the little toys. <laughs> little. That's what they sound like. See, that tiger sound uh, much scarier. That is. But as I mentioned, they'll attack from behind or from the side, and they will be aiming for the neck, either the front, where, like I said, they will puncture the trachea, the your windpipe, <laughs> and chugs. The Sometimes they will sever the uh, jugular, which will cause you to bleed out. So that at least helps you dive faster. <laughs> what do they eat? Um, so, great segue. <laughs> they prey on <laughs> wild boar. Um, there's two kinds of deer. I think cheetal and sambar are what they're called. Uh, antelope, a type of ox species called gar, water buffalo, Smaller prey like turtles, fish, mice, rabbits, squirrels, badgers, and even termites they'll snack on if they can find them. They have like been... A desperate meal. Yeah. <laughs> Struggle meal. Termites. They have been known, however, to kill and eat prey as large as rhinos and elephants. And once they kill something, they will either eat it at the kill site, or what they will usually do is drag it into the underbrush, into cover, before they start eating. They're... Now, this sucks. <laughs> there are reports. When I read this, I told you about this already, but mm-hmm. it shook me to my fucking core when I read this. There oh. are reports from hunters during the uh, British Raj, which is the British colonial period in India, attesting that tigers were able to imitate the sounds of sambar deer in order to lure prey towards them. There are similar stories of tigers in colder climates further north and east that are capable of imitating the sounds of black bears. Because yes, they will eat bears too. (laughs) And although they're not part of their normal diet, tigers are fully capable of killing and eating other predators. They will, um, they've been documented as killing leopards, bears, wolves, wild dogs, and even crocodiles. They'll sometimes attack livestock, which is usually where problems with humans come in, and that's when a, a tiger will be deemed a problem tiger. But humans, we are generally not considered prey, and tigers will actually make an effort to avoid us. They're naturally very elusive and shy. They are also, um, if you somehow by some miracle manage to outrun, outjump, and uh, outmuscle a tiger, and you think, I know what to do, I'll run into a stream. Everyone knows cats hate water. Dude, are you for real? Tigers are very strong swimmers. Is there any way that you could survive a tiger attack? Nope. Oh, you're just fucked. Yeah. If a tiger wants to kill you, you're, you don't have a say in the matter. All right. Um, 
but they're very strong. Yeah, they're very strong swimmers because they do have um, partial webbing between their toes. They'll chase prey into water if it runs in, and they'll even pursue prey across bodies of water. Apparently, they're clever enough to actually chase larger prey that's not good at swimming into bodies of water because they know that they'll have an advantage and they can kill it easier. Generally, they will uh, stay within like a designated home territory that they'll patrol and defend fiercely from other tigers. They're highly territorial. Adolescent cubs will make returns to their mother's territory in their first years alone. Female cubs tend to stay closer to their mother's home range, and uh, it also seems like they visit their moms more often, which is really cute. We love a healthy mother-daughter relationship. Females reach sexual maturity around three to four years of age, and they have a really brief gestation period of only a few months. It's like three to four months, and they will give birth to anywhere between one and six cubs. And I've got to bring the room down again. Only about 50% of tiger cubs live to adulthood. Where did they go? It's a rough world out there, buddy. (laughs) I mean, there's other predators in the jungle. Again, leopards, um, wild dogs, wolves. Male tigers will uh, kill cubs so that a female will go into estrus quicker and they they can mate with them. So it's rough out there for a little baby tiger cub. When they're born, they only weigh about two to three pounds at birth. And they're born blind, so they are completely dependent on their mother. Um, and they will remain dependent upon her for protection and food in their first year, but they become fully independent at around two years of age. Also, fun fact, a group of tigers is called an ambush or a streak. That's awful. (laughs) That's awful? Why? It's called an ambush. (laughs) You're not wrong. You're not wrong. Well, a group of owls is called a parliament. A group of flamingos is called a, I forgot, but it's something fruity. Flamboyance. Now, I mentioned that tigers inhabit the, or Bengal tigers inhabit the Indian subcontinent, so I do want to give a little bit of background about India and Nepal. Now, this is a very brief, abridged, truncated overview of Indian and Nepalese history. There's no possible way I could have fit every single detail of either of these cultures or histories into this without, uh, this episode being about mm, four years long so i'm including all the sources i used to look it up it's they've (laughs) every country in the indian subcontinent has a really fascinating rich history and i encourage you to go read about it because i had a lot of fun reading about it so again i'm just going to give you bare bones just that you have context for our setup here now the earliest evidence of human presence in south asia dates back two million years ago same time that uh, uh tigers appear in the fossil record How about that? Humans are believed to have inhabited the Indian subcontinent for over 250,000 years. That makes it one of the oldest inhabited regions in human history. It's around 2600 uh, BCE where we see evidence of a flourishing unified culture known as the Indus Valley Civilization. I barely remember learning about that alongside like Mesopotamia and the Fertile Crescent in sixth grade. But Indus Valley Civilization, it's also where India gets its name from. This civilization could also date as far back as 7,000 BCE, but most sources I saw said pinpointed 2,600. Uh, The old IVC started to decline and came to an end around 1,300 BCE. This was likely due to natural disasters caused by environmental changes that were happening in the region. 
And what emerged from that was the Vedic civilization. This was an Indo-Aryan culture that began to dominate the region in about 1500 BCE. Now, when I say Aryan, I know we have kind of a certain connotation now. (laughs) Because one big dumb idiot about 80 years ago decided to attach a certain meaning to it. Um, But Aryan in this context actually just refers to what it originally refers to is just like people of a shared culture um, from a certain area. And it doesn't, it's not associated with any one race or anything like that. It's just a shared culture among different people. So I just wanted to say that just in case people were like, huh, Aryan? The primary language of the civilization was Sanskrit. And it's called... That's my favorite font. Sanskrit? (laughs) That and Times New Roman. Oh, yeah. Um, But this period is called the Vedic period or the Vedic civilization because they brought with them like these teachings that they referred to as Vedas, Vedas. Yeah, basically like a a code kind of. Um, But these teachings would be what would later develop into Hinduism. When it comes to Nepal, their recorded history begins around this time in the seventh or eighth century BCE with a people known as the Kirats or Kirati who inhabited the Kathmandu Valley. And if Karat sounds familiar, it's because Far Cry 4, which takes place in a facsimile of Nepal, All the right, the map was called Karat. All right, loser. All right. <laughs> Following the Vedic civilization comes uh, what is known as the Classical Period, or the Gupta Period. It's during this time that... Thank you. It's during this time that centralized power was first established by the Nanda Dynasty, and then the Mauryas in the 4th to 2nd century BCE. And I have to mention, just because he's a really prominent figure in Indian uh, history, this is around the time that Ashoka the Great ruled. Uh, He was, I think, the third Mauryan king. It's believed that he's the one who brought Buddhism to Nepal as well. Uh, Nepal at this time was ruled by the Lichavis, I think is how you say it. They came from northern India. They overthrew the Karate sometime in the 4th century. And the country actually flourished under their rule as they promoted art and architecture. Similarly, in India still, during this period, the Gupta dynasty rose to power in 4th century current era. And they ushered in a renaissance period of art and literature. This is known as the Golden Age or the Classical Period. At this time, Hinduism also continued to develop and Buddhism and Jainism also emerged in the region. After that comes the medieval period. This is characterized by shifting geopolitical dynamics as regional kingdoms consolidated their power as independent entities. Several were reigned over by Muslim rulers, which reflects the growing influence of Islam in northern India. In Nepal, after the Lichavis came the Thakuris, uh, and then after them came the Mala dynasty, who ushered in also a new golden age for Nepal, art, architecture, uh, religion, music, literature, law, city planning, all flourished. Um, they also introduced the caste system to Nepal. The Mala dynasty would actually rule for the next 550 years. So they were doing something right. It was uh, Yaksha Mala, I think is his name, that divided the kingdom then among his three sons. This became Kathmandu, Bhaktapur, and Patan. And then after that, Nepal would be further divided into numerous other independent principalities. After that comes um, probably one of the most well-known, well-known periods in Indian history, um, the rise of the Mughal Empire. 
This is considered. Yeah. (laughs) A lot of people outside of India probably don't. We're also American and our education system when it comes to countries that are not the U.S. or non-European countries is not awesome. Yeah. The brown countries apparently just don't give a fuck about history. All right. All right. All right. Um, But the Mughal Empire is considered one of India's greatest empires, and many monuments from this period still stand in India today. The Taj Mahal is actually one of these constructions. Oh! Yeah. What is the Taj Mahal? It was was constructed by an emperor who, um, I think it was like a tomb for a wife of his, or a tomb or some kind of just like temple for her after she died. Is it a world wonder? I think it is. I wonder why. It's pretty cool. I mean. Yeah. Um, but the Mughals emerged in around the 16th century. Specifically, they were founded in 1526 by the first Mughal emperor or Mughal king, a guy named Babar or Babur. Um, and he begun a dynasty of Muslim leadership in the area. His grandson, Akbar the Great, who is a super mega homie, he succeeded his father. Uh, his father was a guy named Humayun. He succeeded him when he was just 13 years old. He's an enlightened ruler who further expanded the Mughal Empire across the Indian subcontinent and dedicated his reign to improving relations between Hindus and Muslims. So, cool guy. So, this means that the whole of India would now be ruled by a single monarch. It was a time characterized by wealth, prosperity, development of infrastructure. However, towards the end of the empire, uh, with the death of one of the last Mughal kings... Uh, I think Aurangzeb is how you say it. This kind of signified, his death kind of signified the beginning of the end of the empire. Yeah. His policies, (laughs) his policies were not super popular and a lot of them were to the detriment of the empire later on. So he kind of sowed the seeds of destruction, unfortunately. In Nepal at this time, the Shah dynasty was established. This unified all of these separate kingdoms. And this dynasty would actually last until 2008. They were only briefly supplanted by the Rana dynasty from the late 1800s to the 1950s. When Obama was elected? (laughs) Oh, shit. When you put it in that context? Holy fuck. That's a long time. I was eight. (laughs) Holy shit. Wow. So following the Mughal Empire comes the Maratha Empire. They defeated the Mughals in the east, and mm-hmm. they fought the Europeans who came to colonize the subcontinent throughout the 18th and 19th centuries. Mm-hmm. Uh, these are known as the Anglo-Maratha Wars. They were defeated in the early 1800s. After them is the Sikh Empire. I shouldn't say after. These are kind of these last two, along with the Mughals, are all kind of existing concurrently. With um, we'll get to what the very last one is, but they're all coexisting together. After them comes the Sikh Empire. They ruled in the northwestern region of the continent, and after the death of Maharaja Ranjit Singh, the Anglo-Sikh Wars ended, uh, and with them came the end of an already weakened empire. So Mughal Empire is done, Maratha Empire is done, Sikh Empire is done. Those all happen over the course of a period of time known as the British Raj. This is the British colonial period in India. Began when in the late 1500s, early 1600s, there were several European trading companies that were competing for Indian markets. One of these powers was our old friends from last episode, uh, 
the East India Trading Company. Not Dutch East India, but English East India, which arguably worse. Why? Because it's England. Very valid. <laughs> Very valid. Um, the East India Company arrived uh, around 1617 in the Indian subcontinent, and they were able to gain territory in northern India through trade concessions with Mughal emperors. So they were kind of sneaky about it. They were even sneakier by taking advantage of the religious and political divisions that followed the breakdown of the Mughal Empire to seize even larger swaths of land. In 1757, they won a major victory in an event known as the Battle of Plassey. They were able to seize control of the Bengal province and establish political control. After that, about 100 years later, there came the Rebellion of 1857, or the First War of Indian Independence. It's referred to as the Mutiny by the dumbass British. Uh, this was an attempt to the restore... <laughs> this was an attempt to restore Indian autonomy, but it was unsuccessful, and India was fully incorporated into the British Empire. So the British Raj technically begins the following year, 1858, because that's how long the uh, rebellion was. Um, you'll hear a lot of apologists, a lot of colonization apologists, kind of refer to the introduction of British infrastructure, rail lines in particular, and railroads as a positive outcome. The reality was, however, the railroads actually did a lot more harm than good for local populations. And mm, I'd say that you know, 200 years of exploiting land and resources and people for their labor and oppressing them and subjugating them isn't, isn't great. an even trade-off for a dumb fucking train, but... Yeah, not great. Not awesome. Not really worth the risk and reward, no. if you ask me. I wouldn't say so. So that's where we are. Um, that's where our story takes place. Yeah, that's where we are when our story begins. We're firmly within the, uh, the British Raj. Was that just an earthquake? No way. All right. I've told you about tigers. told you about people. What about what happens when people and tigers interact? They hold hands. Um, not quite. They hold paws. <laughs> well. So. They enjoy each other's company. <laughs> actually, not, not too far off. Oh. Uh, so the Hindi and uh, Nepali word for tiger is bog. Uh, I've also seen the word sheer. If that sounds familiar, that's the name of the tiger in the Jungle Book, Shere Khan. Shere, I think, is just meant to kind of refer to any large feline. But um, the Bengal tiger is actually the national anim animal of India and Bangladesh. Ooh. Mm -hmm. They are very important, not just because they are this national symbol, and for a couple other reasons I'm going to talk about, but they are, um, all animals are considered sacred in Hinduism. It's a... Hindu belief that when Brahma created animals, he had a secret in each one, which marks them as spiritually significant in some way to people. There's also a belief that ancestors and relatives can be reborn as animals. Makes sense to me. Mm -hmm. For Muslims in India, in Islam, animal abuse is actually considered something that is against the will of Allah. So, well, Like a serious sin. Yeah. Big no-no. So animals are very revered in India, which I really love love to see it now dating all the way back to ancient india such as like i mentioned the uh in this valley civilization there are rock carvings from this period that depict tigers which have been speculated to show either worship or conflict or both there's this really old 
Sanskrit epic that dates back to 400 BC called the Mahabharata. And it makes a really, a really appropriate, really revel, uh, relevant point about tigers, actually. It says, do not cut down the forest with its tigers and do not banish the tigers from the forest. The tiger perishes without the forest and the forest perishes without its tigers. Whoa. Therefore, the tigers should stand guard over the forest and the forest should protect all its tigers. So again, this is a belief they've had since at least 400 BCE. They're tiger lovers. Yeah. Yeah. Mega. It, they kind of remind me of, um, we've talked about in Kasagake, the Ainu and their reverence for bears, mm-hmm. where they manage to coexist with these animals because I think they have this, they view them with equal parts fear and respect, which is what allows them to actually live somewhat harmoniously with them. And... This excerpt from the Mahabharata makes a really good point because the animals that tigers prey on, such as boar and deer, can wreak havoc on crops if their populations grow unchecked. So tigers are a very key part of their ecosystems. The Hindu goddess Durga, I've also seen her called Kali, she rides an invincible tiger, or lion, sometimes it's shown as, uh, named Dawan, I think is the name, as does another deity, Lord Ayapa. Shiva the Destroyer is often associated with tigers, and he's usually depicted wearing a tiger skin. There's a legendary figure from Indian myth. I'm going to see if I can get the name right. You got it, buddy. I believe in you. (laughs) Vyagrapada. Huh? You said what? Vyagrapada is a legendary Uh, figure who's depicted with the legs of a tiger. His name actually, I think, translates to, like, tiger-footed. There are tribes today that actually, tribes today throughout India who do still worship tigers as gods. Uh, the Gon tribe, they call their god Bagdev, which literally means tiger god. Um, the Garo tribe as well, the Tulanadas tribe, they all revere the tiger as a protector. There's also several tribal communities such as the Warli people who worship an ancient uh, tiger or leopard deity known as Wagoba. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of shrines and idols honoring Wagoba that you can find today in parts of India. Tribes of the Sundarbans uh, view tigers as owners of the forest, specifically the goddess Bonobibi, who rides a tiger, just like uh, Durga. She's believed to protect people from tiger attacks when they venture into the forest to gather resources. And she's actually worshipped by both Hindus and Muslims. There is also the Varya tribe, who believe in a tiger god known as Bagshaw. Bagashwar, I think is how you say it. Bagashwar. They believe he protects them from tiger attacks. And they pay tribute to him during the holiday Diwali by placing a bowl of gruel behind their homes. Gruel? Yeah. If it's empty by morning, it means it's a sign that they've been visited by Bagashwar. The Naga tribe have probably my favorite belief when it comes to their reverence of tigers. They believe that the cosmic spirit, man, and tiger are all brothers. There's a a version of this legend that says the tiger was tricked by man into living in the forest, which caused man to lose his sight of the cosmic spirit. No. Tigers are rarely killed by the Naga for this reason, and they actually perform rituals dedicated to tigers during certain festivals and ceremonies in the hopes that one day the three brothers can be reunited. That's kind of sweet. I know. So they like actually view, view tigers as brothers, which is, I love that a lot. Now, when it came to tiger hunting, because despite, you know, all the reverence they had for them, tiger hunting was still something that took place. It was only reserved, traditionally, it was only reserved for royal families. 
And these hunts would be referred to as Bag Shikar, which means tiger hunt. And leave it to the British to uh, bring in some royally bad takes, as always. Love to see it. The British colonial government viewed tigers as an obstacle to their efforts to, quote-unquote, civilize the land and uh, encouraged hunts to eradicate them completely. They were categorized as vermin, and bounties were actually offered for uh, tigers being killed. In a way, the extermination of tigers kind of became symbolic of British efforts to colonize India, because if you think of tigers as a symbol of India and indigenous Indian culture, and taking into account the belief of a lot of these people of associating the tiger spirit with the forest itself... It's basically like taking something that's really, really, really impactful and like meaningful to a person. Exactly. Like a whole culture. Yes. And just like destroying it. Yeah, pretty much. This is a bad, bad, bad example. It's like if someone were to come in and start burning all of our American flags. (laughs) Like imagine how booty tickled butthurt we'd all be. Yeah. Not all of us. I mean, yeah, I wouldn't. I'd be like valid. I'd be like fair. But like (laughs) it's just something so crucial and staple to a culture. Right. Is that yeah? It's a symbol of the people of the land, and they're yeah, trying to wholesale too. slaughter them completely, literally mm. eradicate them. So because could you imagine being one of these first British colonials coming to India, and you're walking through the forest, and out of nowhere, a 500-pound big orange striped thing thing comes with at four-inch teeth and massive claws sees you. Jumps 30 feet across the stream. After running like 40 miles per hour straight Jumps at you. on you and then digs its teeth into the back of your neck, paralyzing you. And then drags you into the bush and eats you. Not great. Pretty intense. Not a win. No. I could only imagine that, yeah, they were shitting themselves when it came to tigers. And they were. And because of these bounties and the general negative view of tigers, um, one colonist actually was able to single-handedly kill upwards of 400 tigers in only a few years. My God. Others killed anywhere from 70 to 300, also in the short span of only a few years. How do you kill that many tigers? They're all named in this book, which, by the way, um, Dane Hucklebridge's book, No Beast, So Fierce, where I got most of this information from, is really great if you want to read it. It's got a really interesting writing style, which is just interesting. Just read it. It's a really good book. Um, but he names all of these colonists who did this. I'm not gonna because fuck them. Um, they don't deserve it, but I just wanted to throw that statistic out there. Between 1875 and 1925, over 8,000 tigers were killed to procure bounties. This number, they believe, however, is much higher since this figure is only what was officially recorded. Now that we have all that, let's really talk about... Miss Champawat. So, all of the attacks take place uh, across about eight years and two countries, beginning in Nepal. And it's believed that these first attacks likely occurred around 1899 or 1900 in the lowland jungles and floodplains of western Nepal that are known as Terai. Possibly, these attacks might have occurred on those who lived in these floodplains, an indigenous people called the Tharu who actually coexisted for with the tigers for many years in this region. This is like an epicenter of tiger, tiger population in Nepal. They would frequently spend time in the jungles collecting resources. They had a very important connection with the forest, and they revered the wilds and its creatures as sacred. Information 
about these early attacks in Nepal are is kind of difficult to find. Um, mostly, there's a couple reasons why. For one, fortunately, actually, Nepal did not have a colonial government, uh, so there was no one, no colonial government was documenting specific instances and keeping records of attacks. Uh, the Nepalese government also largely regarded tigers as just objects of sport hunting, and they left local authorities to deal with problem tigers on their own. So if you were in a village and you were having a tiger problem and you went to the government, you're like, hey, they're like, shit, is a tiger eating us? They're like, well, mm-hmm. sounds like that's between you and the tiger, bro. Yeah, like, ah, oh, that sure sucks. Good <laughs> luck. Have fun. So, yeah, they wouldn't be much help. Uh, the Tharu culture was also primarily oral, so if they're meaning that their history and customs are passed down um, through spoken word, meaning if they're, you know, if they did have any kind of documentation of these attacks, oral history unfortunately does have uh, the risk of being lost eas- more more easily than written physical record. There was also a pretty significant cultural stigma surrounding being attacked and especially eaten by a tiger. On top of all the other stuff, it's frowned upon that you got eaten by them. It's bad enough to get, you know, attacked, killed, and eaten by a tiger. But add that onto your village being like, what the fuck, dude? What the fuck did you do wrong? Yeah, that's that's literally it. Because they believed that tigers were these physical manifestations of the power and grace of the jungle that they relied upon, as well as seeing them as guardians, if you were killed by a tiger, this could indicate some kind of spiritual imbalance spiritual turbulence for the village meaning that there's something the community did to upset the balance and displease their deities so they're like something's wrong and it's because of us the soul of a person killed by a tiger was also doomed to haunt the living as a negative spirit known as a boot which is a poltergeist type entity that is capable of causing misfortune illness and even death side note there is an indian horror movie called boot is it good? Uh, it was weird. You watched it? I watched it. The whole thing? Yeah. When? I watched it with some friends. Boot. Boot. It's interesting, for sure. Um, or my first uh, Indian movie, so it was, it was an good. experience. It was a good one. So yeah, becoming a boot was not awesome. Being consumed by a tiger also added the extra layer of preventing the person from being cremated which was a very significant part of the complex funeral rites carried out by the Tharu. Even today in Nepal, um, a lot of attacks in these Western regions go unreported. I think it just has to do with that. It doesn't happen too often enough that it's like a big deal. And when it does, usually it's not a man eater. So details, details. Now during her little tromp through Nepal, this tigress was known as the Rupal man eater. She's a man. Uh, I'm surprised you clung onto that and not RuPaul. The RuPaul man eater? I'm sorry. Excuse me? RuPaul, Mr. Drag Race? <laughs> sorry, Mrs. Drag Race. What? Yeah. The RuPaul man eater? The RuPaul man eater. RuPaul. Um, Interesting. This is strange, however, because RuPaul is much further north than. The Bengal tigers' usual range in Nepal. Like I said, they hang out in these floodplains and like the western lowlands. Why she was all the way up north was very interesting. There's a couple uh, theories as to why she was this far north. For one, the ruling dynasty in Nepal at this time, the Rana dynasty, 
they established trade connections with the British. This unfortunately eventually led to the overexploitation of these floodplains for their resources, which may have driven tiger populations out of this area further north. Interesting to note, Rupal is directly across the border from Champawat. This kumquat? Yes. Now she's estimated to have killed around 200 people in Nepal, mostly in uh, Rupal, in or around Rupal. This is because this village was surrounded on all sides by these steep, like, wooded ravines, which created a prime hunting ground because it allowed tigers to grab prey, or people, I guess, from the edge of the settlement and pull them down to the ravines Jesus. where hunters couldn't follow them. Yeah. Jesus. Yeah. Why is she so mean? She, I'll, I'll tell you at the end. <laughs> I, there's a good reason for it. Well, as good of a reason as a tiger can have for, you know, Eating a whole fuck ton of people. people. <laughs> yeah. Now, when she kind of became known as this problem man-eater, there was a large hunt that was organized. Sources vary as to whether it was comprised of all locals, or you'll see a lot of sites and sources say that like it was like a 200-person army that had to drive her out, which I think is just kind of an embellishment to be like, oh, this tiger needed a whole army to get rid of her. No, maybe she actually did. <laughs> Possibly. Um, it seems likely that this little hunting party was comprised of both local volunteers and armed soldiers. They were able to funnel her towards the banks of the Sharda River, which is on the border of India and Nepal. They were doing this in an attempt to corner her, but because tigers can fucking swim, she swam across the river and into India. Nice! And they are just like, well, guess it's their problem now. <laughs> move on to India, where things are much more documented and things get very interesting. Now, Champawa is located in a district called Kumaon. Uh, I think it's how you say it. It's either Kumaon or Kumaon. I think it's Kumaon. Um, now, in Kumaon, in the early 1900s, there were several factors that contributed to the making of a man-eater. They were all stemming from colonial policies Go fucking figure. Colonialism is making literally every aspect <laughs> of life here worse. Now, because this sounds counterintuitive, but because more tigers were being actively hunted, more humans were coming into contact with them. And that meant more encounters, more conflict was arising between the two, especially since tigers who had been shot or trapped, but not killed would be forced to resort to seek easier prey like people because in some way they were incapable of catching and dispatching their usual prey. In India, in the late 1800s, tigers killed an estimated 1,000 people annually. An estimated 7,000 were killed in a five-year period in the 1930s. What? Yeah. What? Mm-hmm. Oh, my goodness. So, <laughs> great job uh, civilizing things, good, Britain. Good job. Good job, Really, idiots. really bang-up job, guys. There was also... The fact that forests and grasslands were being cleared and converted into farmland and logging operations. Not only was this reducing tiger habitats for tiger habitats and the habitats of their prey, but the British, in order to procure these large areas of land, set up their operations. They banished the indigenous communities that were living there so that they could have a monopoly on harvesting timber. These communities had practiced sustainable methods of farming and livestock for centuries, and they formed kind of a 
mutually beneficial relationship, almost a symbiotic relationship with the forests and jungles they lived in. And indigenous practices, I'll tell, I'll say, I'll talk about it more at the end. They are kind of key to reducing human tiger conflict in a lot of ways. It was also the overhunting and poaching of native wildlife, including tiger prey items. There was a wave of disease that also swept through undulate populations in the region. Wild deer populations were completely wiped out in some areas. They've been in their shit kind of rock. Yeah. And local populations were forced to, I don't want to say steal because it's their country, but they were forced to, you know, quote unquote, steal necessary resources from the forests that the British had claimed, usually under cover of darkness. This is a problem, because remember, tigers are nocturnal. So this is just one big shitstorm that has been brewing for a long time. Uh, Hucklebridge's book kind of, he says that it's not at all a surprise that this happened, and this was kind of all but an inevitability. Now, tales of the Champawa were known in Kumaon at least as early as 1903, and in March 1907, a British soldier named Edward Harold Wildblood, he managed to shoot the tigress nice. during a hunt. Well, not nice, but like, okay, okay. try to eradicate the problem. He I see offered, you. Yeah, he offered a reward of 200 rupees for a successful kill. Turns out he was mistaken, and this was not the man-eater. <laughs> Dumbass. Okay. All tigers look the same. Yeah, well, yeah. All tigers are tigers. All tigers are tigers. They all have unique stripe patterns, remember? They're not all the same. And ears. <laughs> the scary ears. <laughs> God, scary ears. Oh, no. So she was very much known in this region as a man-eater, as a problem tiger at, by this time. By April of 1907, the year after Wild Blood believed he had shot at her, she had tallied another 234 kills in India. Jesus. So if you're keeping track... That is a combined total of 434 kills. So obviously, the British colonial government is kind of shitting itself um, because there's a massive man-eating tiger that they have tried to hunt numerous times, actually, to no avail. There was a master hunter who was brought in, a guy named B.A. Repsch, specifically to hunt this tigress. Uh, failed. And of course, there was Wild Blood's blunder, like I mentioned. Dumbass. So the deputy commissioner of Nainital, which is uh, a town or a village in this region, a guy named Charles Henry Berthoud, 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 he sought out one last man that he thought might stand some chance against the tiger. This was a guy named Edward James Corbett. Now, Edward James Corbett, who went by Jim, James Corbett. Jim, my man. <laughs> my man, Jim. He was born in Nainital in Kumaon as one of 15 children. One out of 15? Yep. 15? Mm-hmm. One five. What year is it? Uh, he was born, I couldn't find his date of birth, but uh, this must have been the 1870s probably. 15 in the 1870s? Yeah. What is that survival rate? Not good. No. The survival rate to being born? That's really... That woman had some strong she fucking sure did. body. She Probably a- because she was Irish. His father oh. and his mother were both Irish. His father was an Irish postmaster. Um, they were in India because he took a position in the region. So Corbett was born here. Um, at the time he was contracted by the government, he was in his early 30s. He 
as I said, was born here, so he grew up among the local people and culture. He okay. fluently spoke both Kumani and English. So they liked him? Yeah. The people? He considered, he considered himself Kumani. Oh, um, okay. He considered India very much his home. He was very intimately equated with the quickly disappearing jungles and forests in the region. He's hunted and tracked through them his whole life with indigenous shikaris. Shikari is a word for hunter. He uh, learned pretty much everything he knew about hunting in the forest from uh, the headman of a local village, a guy named Kunwar Singh, who became like a father figure to Corbett after his own father died when he was just five years old. So really tragic. Um, And because of his father dying so soon, he had to rely on the jungle and hunting in order to feed his family. So did he kill tigers? Did he eat tigers? That's interesting. Do people eat tigers? You know, I don't know. I couldn't find information if they ate if they eat them. Like, what the fuck do they do with them if not eat trophy them? hunt them? We gotta put the guts somewhere. Mm-hmm. I don't know. If tigers were hunted, it was largely for sport and trophy hunts. Um, Jim wasn't interested in that though. He actually had a formative experience as a young boy with a tiger. He came face to face with one in the bush. And it said that they just kind of stared at each other for a moment and the tiger just disappeared back into the forest. Ever since then, he's kind of, it's believed that this is the moment where he like, he's like, oh, I got it. I get why these animals are worshipped as gods and revered the way that they are. Because something about looking that animal in the eye in that moment, like changed something in him. I mean, shit, I w- it would to me too. I would too. The, like face to face? I locked eyes with the mountain lion at the zoo once as he was walking down a log oh. like towards the fence, oh. towards the gate. And it activated some ancient caveman <laughs> part of my brain that was like, holy fucking shit. I'm going to get my throat ripped out right now, knowing that there were two barriers between us. Fully, and that this fully, cat very much was not in an aggressive posture safe. wanting to eat me. No. Fully safe. But despite the barrier, there was only about like maybe two feet between us when he came all the way down the the branch or the log. So it was really intense because we just like were making eye contact the whole time. And it was so crazy and so cool. So I could, reading that, that experience he had, I was like, yeah, I get it, Jim. Yeah. Um, but overall, it seems that, you know, after this, he, or just in general, because obviously the people here are very, um, tigers are sacred to them. He had a little interest in hunting tigers and he held the same respect for them as the indigenous population. He, uh, in one of his writings, he actually has a really progressive idea of the time. He says a tiger's function in the scheme of things is to help maintain the balance of nature. And if on rare occasions when driven by dire necessity, he kills a human being or when his natural food has been ruthlessly exterminated by man, it is not fair that for these acts, a whole species should be branded as being cruel and bloodthirsty. Yeah. Yeah. It's just one tiger. It's just one. It doesn't mean that they're all bad. And he gets that, you know, they're, they don't do this just to eat people. He gets that they are driven to becoming man eaters. Yeah, exactly. Man eaters aren't born, they're made. Now, Corbett first heard of the Champawat in 1903 from a friend. Uh, this friend also happened to be the brother in law of B.A. Repsh, who, like I said, is the master hunter they brought in to kill the tiger, who failed. Good job. And when this, when this deputy commissioner approached him, he was kind of reluctant at first because it is a tiger. And again, he's kind of wary about hunting tigers. 
but he does go on to accept the commission, seemingly less for fame and more out of a sense of duty. And also, you know, I'm sure it didn't escape him that this is something that could probably help his reputation and his career down the line. I killed the Chakawatney hater. I, I just killed somebody. No big deal. Let's just put that on the resume. What an extremely beautiful <laughs> resume that'd be. However, he had two conditions for his hunt. One, uh, any bounties that were currently out on the tiger were to be withdrawn. He did this because he didn't want to seem like a bounty hunter. He didn't seem like he didn't want to seem like he was doing this just for the reward. And two, he asked that any hunters or soldiers who are currently pursuing the tiger be called in because as he put it, he didn't want to risk being accidentally shot. Nice. Apparently this has happened to him before. So he's like, yeah, he's been accidentally shot shot at. Yeah. So he's like, yeah, I don't, how do you, how are you accidentally shot at? I mean, it's the thick jungle. I mean, they're British. They don't know it. They see something move. So I'm going to shoot at it. It's always, it's a risk today, even while people are hunting, getting shot at. Now, this feeling of duty he felt to kill this tiger, to stop this tiger, this likely doubly stemmed from not only the sympathy and the personal connection he felt towards the indigenous communities he grew up with, but also, keeping in mind he is a British colonial, this colonial mindset of paternalism, which mm. is the notion that, you know... The white man's burden. It is. It was Europeans. Not the reparations. <laughs> it's literally the white guilt reparations. Exactly. Are you serious? It was a European belief at the time that as, you know, quote unquote, civilized nations, they had a duty to protect these defenseless indigenous populations, even though they had been living up. along the animals and off the land for centuries before they showed up. Be quiet. Very strange. So there was this, you know, idea that Native Indians were helpless against the ravages of man-eating tigers without European intervention to defend them, even though they had peacefully coexisted with tigers for centuries before the Europeans arrived. And I dare say Europeans are kind of the common denominator in why tigers are attacking more people now. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> just one week after accepting the commission, the tigers struck again. Nice. She killed a woman in a village about 60 miles away from Nainatal. This oh. village was called uh, Polly. Not great. Polly? Yeah. Your cat? My cat, Polly. Your cat, Polly, who <laughs> is maliciously trying to kill my snake Who's right menacing now. your snake, yeah. I really just hope she doesn't fall through. I hope not, too. So Corbett heard about this attack. He departed for the village immediately, and he was accompanied by six Kumani men that he had recruited to help him out. On May 3rd, 1907, they all arrived in Polly. When Polly. they get there... It is an incredibly eerie scene. This is a village of about 50 inhabitants. It was entirely silent and completely empty when they got there. So they were like, something is wrong. It was customary in this area also for like a celebratory greeting to welcome new people. Uh, So when that happened, when that didn't happen, obviously they were unnerved. There was even uh... the fact that, you know, Jim's a European. It wasn't uncommon that if he did go into one of these rural villages children who had not seen a european before would come out and just look at him be like, Why not is even this white man yeah here? exactly who's this goofy Why does white he look like khakis that? uh but yeah not even children were coming out to see the new arrivals so it was a ghost town in this village as they were walking around looking around more very slowly terrified villagers began to emerge from their houses 
and they painted a picture of the events of the last five days. In this period, no one had left their homes at all, out of fear. For five days, they all stayed locked in their houses because this tiger's out here killing people. They said that they had heard her calling out for the past three nights only about 100 yards from the village. Mm. That's so scary to me. That's so close. It's really close. And uh, a little bit earlier, they had spotted her in a nearby field. So they were like, I am not stepping foot outside this house. Absolutely not. And because of this, they couldn't tend their fields. They couldn't feed their animals. They couldn't seek help from neighbors for fear of being attacked. So they were completely paralyzed by this one tiger. Corbett, being uh, a hunter and a tracker, he knew that he would get a lot of evidence from the last kill site. So he asked the villagers, could you please take me there? And they said, hell no, we're not going to do that. <laughs> fuck no. Absolutely. Do it yourself. Absolutely. The fuck not. Go find it yourself. Because, again, there's a fucking tiger out there still. They're terrified. And kill people. Yeah. This was not the first attack in the area. Um, Corbett was also not the first hunter to come. Others who had come there had failed. So I think that they just thought, you know, what are his odds? He's going to, it's not going to do anything if he looks at it anyway. So why even bother? They also were not used to tigers in this area. Kumaun is a pretty mountainous area. Pali is located in a pretty like elevated region. This is not somewhere that tigers normally inhabit. Again, they like these kind of river valleys and lowlands where there's dense jungle for them to hide in, to stalk in. So people living in these mountainous areas, they're not used to tiger attacks. So this is just like a whole other level of fear and terror for them. On top of all that, the sun was beginning to set. So they were like, yeah, you can't go out there, dude. Yeah, like just, just call it a night. Call it a it's night. It's fine. You don't gotta go. You don't gotta rush. Okay. I mean, you kind of do have to rush, but just don't. Just don't do it. And It's not worth it. No. It's really not that... It's not that serious. And to just drive home how scared these people were. So the people of Pali were Hindu. Like I mentioned, cremation uh, as part of funeral rites was something that was deeply important. The fact that they were so scared to not go to the site, let alone attempt to find the body, is pretty... That's like, that's a, a terror I can't even imagine. It's like to, pretty significant to be so scared to perform your own rituals. Your own rituals for sending off your dead. That's crazy. Yeah, not good. Yeah. So they're like, we can't take you to the kill site, but we'll, we'll give you an account of the last attack. So what had happened was there was a group of about 20 women who were out on the edge of the forest collecting oak leaves for their cattle. One woman climbed up a tree to collect extra leaves as she was climbing back down, the tiger appeared. The tiger sees her, makes for her, runs up to her, stood up on its hind legs, nope. and ripped her out of the tree. Oh, my God. It then grabbed her by the throat. It ran up the side of the ravine and into the dense undergrowth. Oh, my God. The other women obviously screamed and ran back to the village for help. A small band of men went out in search of the tiger and the woman. Only one of them was armed. That's another thing. These people don't have weapons yeah. because after the rebellion of 1857, Indians were prohibited from keeping weapons except, except without a notoriously hard to obtain permit. So none mm. of these, these people don't have a way to defend themselves. To defend themselves. No, even traditionally they would have used like bows and arrows um, to fend off. Yeah. And they didn't have that because those were weapons. So how do they hunt? I don't know. <laughs> I truly don't know. Probably traps, snares. 
her. Get a snare for a tiger. Yeah. So this party goes out there with their one guy <laughs> who's armed. Um, and they do find the tiger. They come across the tiger. It's unfortunately too late to save the woman as it had already begun to eat her. As they approach, the tiger sees them, turns on them. She charges and roars at them as they approach. The one guy with the gun fires it into the air, hoping that would scare off the animal. No, nope. what a waste of a bullet. Yeah, well, it's it was also... A lot of the weapons that they did have were, like, old and in disrepair because they had been hidden from the British, so, you know. Um, but, yeah, so he fires the gun into the air, trying to scare it off, but it does nothing. Um, they're like, fuck, so they run back to the village, terrified. Yeah. So that was kind of that on that. Corbett, that night, his first night there, says, you know what? Fuck it, I ball. And no, he made no, the risky Corbett. decision to lure the cat out with the genius decision of sleeping out in the fucking open Corbett, by the road. You crazy motherfucker. Where the tiger was last seen. You crazy. You good. On, you know, good, good on you. I don't know. I just stuttered so hard. But good on you. Good <laughs> on you for having such. A ballsy, ballsy, I'm ballsy brain. Surprise! He made this journey sixty miles from Nainital, carrying the weight of his balls of fucking steel. Dude. Because that is nuts that he yeah, would do bro. this. His arms sore. <laughs> this. Uh, he like crotch does, heavy. He does admit in his uh, writings about this event that this was a stupid decision. He's Good like, I him. really shouldn't have done this. Um, if you never fuck around. Yeah, he very quickly realized that this was a bad plan because never he understood that tigers are extremely effective nocturnal hunters. And even though it's a full moon, he knows that if a tiger wants to kill him, he's not going to get the chance to get a shot off by the time he sees it. He's not going to have the time to react. Um, the quote in his writings was really spooky. He says, overhanging trees cast dark shadow, and when the night wind agitated the branches and the shadows moved, I saw a dozen tigers advancing on me and bitterly regretted the impulse that had induced me to place myself at the man-eater's mercy. Yeah, you goofball. Dumbass. You shouldn't have put yourself fucking in that position. No, but he was like, I can't leave, because if I do, the villagers are going to lose faith in me. And he could have even, at that point, lost faith in himself if he did this. So he had something to prove a little bit. Somehow, he falls asleep. (laughs) This is literally like fucking BuzzFeed Unsolved. (laughs) It is literally BuzzFeed Unsolved. I am Ryan Bergara. I could not be asleep. I could not be, I could not go to sleep. Mm -mm -mm. Jim Corbett is a shaniac. Even with my medication, my little sleepy, sleepy time meds, I would not be able to go to sleep. Fuck no. Are you kidding me? No, absolutely not. So yeah, somehow he falls asleep. Dawn, he falls asleep actually as dawn is coming. So he stays up for most of the night and falls asleep right at the end. The tiger never appeared, which is what good for pussy. him. Good and bad because Get he was it? hoping if it appeared, he would be able to track it. <laughs> but Get it? I called it a pussy. Good <laughs> cat. <laughs> good one, buddy. So it probably didn't kill him because it was still full from its last kill. And nice. it just didn't perceive him as a threat because he was motionless and crouched down. Nice. Nice. Good for him, I guess. Good for Mr. Sorbet. So the next morning, the village is obviously very impressed by this show of uh, courage from Corbett. So the headman of the village asks him if he can stand guard while they tend to their field and their animals. And Corbett agrees. Which is good because they would have run out of foods. Uh, they would have run out of food soon if they weren't able to go to their fields and harvest. They still refused to take him to the kill site. So 
Corbett was like, all right, it is what it is. Mm-hmm. And he uh, smartly decided to stay the second night indoors. <laughs> <laughs> the reason why he was so desperate to see this kill site was because... He's morbid like me. No. <laughs> I'd ask. You know, maybe. I'd fucking ask and be like, hey, shh. Tell me I want to see it. Can I see it? <laughs> like, I want to go to the Lizzie Borden house. I do too. Oh, I want to go to Donner Pass. Because you, yeah. you're a freakazoid. What do you mean? You want to go to the Lizzie Borden house. You want to go to the Donner Pass. <laughs> <laughs> but if he went to the kill site, he would be able to find the tiger's tracks. Tiger tracks are called pug marks. Um, from these tracks, an expert hunter can tell the tiger's sex, age, their feeding habits, Ooh. if they have possible injuries. I don't like that. You can get a lot. There would also possibly be signs like claw marks, urine, droppings. Those could also give... Corbett more information about the animal so he's like I need to get I can't help if I can't see this kill site so he comes up with a little planny plan to impress the villagers with his marksmanship in an attempt to convince them to take him to the kill site now Jim Corbett was an excellent marksman he actually joined Nine Natal's voluntary rifles regiment when he was just 10 years old and he had plenty of practice hunting game in the jungles. I also found out he killed his first leopard when he was 10 goddamn years old. What? Yeah. You know what I did when I was 10 years old? Hmm. What's science camp? <laughs> <laughs> you know what did I do when I was 10 years old? Get fiberglass in your arm. Didn't turn in my algebra homework. You didn't turn in your algebra homework? No, I wasn't good at school. <laughs> and I don't go to it, so fucking so. And, and nothing changed. <laughs> so... He was like, I can shoot. I bet if I show them I can, you know, I'm a good shot, then they'll have more confidence in my abilities and they'll be more willing to to show me this site. So he decides that what he's going to do is he's going to ask the headman where to find a type of mountain goat called Gural. Gural. Gural, which is considered like a delicacy in the region. So he's like, hey, where could I find these goats? I kind of want to go hunting and pick some up. The headman is like, oh, hell yeah. I'll tell you right now, buddy. And he directs him to the steep, grassy ridges around the village. And three villagers volunteer to go with him. While he's out there, he manages to shoot three Gural from a pretty fair distance. I think two of them were actually moving also. So he is a pretty good shot. And he brought them back to the village. They were all super excited. And I think after that, not only because they're more confident in his hunting abilities, but also just he kind of won them over by bringing them food. This was the first big meal they've actually had in like a week. So they were much more willing to kind of open up to him. So they finally agreed, all right, we'll take you to the site. A group of volunteers go with him, including uh, two of the guys from the Guru hunt, who Mm -hmm. Corbett specifically picked. And the family of the woman, before they left, asked Corbett to bring back any remains he might find so that she can be properly cremated and Corbett agrees. So he says, I can do that. Now, normally when a tiger eats someone, there's very little left. As you can imagine. Yeah. It seems, and this kind of reminded me of Kesagake, how they found uh, Mayu's body with just her head and part of her legs. They'll tend to consume parts of the body except for those. So they'll leave the head and the extremities Probably because those are pretty bony parts of you. I mean, your your head is all skull and your legs and arms. Are all bone. How often do you reach for a chicken wing in a bucket? Never, because there's no meat on it. So. <laughs> <laughs> some people so, eat the wings. Yeah, some people. What? what? What part do you eat? The thigh. Oh, I like the breast. Of course you do. <laughs> Sorry, I'm gay. I don't know what to tell you. I'm a titty gal. <laughs> But 
Um, in Hucklebridge's book, he tells a story of one incident of a hunter in, I think, Russia or Siberia who oh was attacked and eaten by a tiger. What they found left of him, he said, could fit in a coat pocket. Out of a whole human? Yep. A whole human? Yep. Just in a coat pocket? Yep. Was it a deep one? Like a Burberry? Just, like a, just a coat pocket. Coat. Wow. That's and Wait, what 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 even could you fit in there? Like a thumb? <laughs> That's so they did find like his bloody clothes and boots, but you can't fit that in the, the pocket. No, but I mean the physical parts oh. of him, like okay. his actual remains. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was nothing left but like bone splinters and what pieces of skin. Yeah, not great. So you know what? That makes sense though. That makes sense. <laughs> Sadly, I, unfortunately, it, it yes. Does. Yeah. Cats are vicious. They sometimes. are, and they again, these cats have to eat. eat. So, and eat, they eat. average about one big meal a week. So when they get that, they're gonna eat it. So yeah, family asks if Corbett can bring back literally whatever he can find, so that they can cremate her. And he says, "Yeah, I'll do that." They reach the site, and while they're there, immediately the first thing that stands out is a large patch of dried blood. At the base of this tree. Okay. On the tree, there are pieces of skin that Ew. had been shredded from her hands as she was forcefully pulled out of it by the tiger. Wait. Wait, what? There was yeah. skin on the trees? Yeah. Why was it on the tree? It was on, like, the on the trunk oh, from like where she a... was holding on, like, the palm, the skin on the palm of her hands and oh, arms. Like, in the trunk. Yeah. Because oh. that's how hard she was gripping onto it and how much force God. the tiger pulled her out of there from. Yeah, it was pretty gnarly. Goddamn. <laughs> yep. Not great. Um, however... Corbett does find what he's looking for, which are those pug marks, those tiger tracks. And from them, he's able to determine that it is a relatively healthy female tiger who's roughly 10 to 12 years old, which is pretty old, kind of older for a tiger. In the wild, Bengals live to about, I think, 15 years. They follow the trail of dried blood down the ravine, back up the opposite bank, so they go kind of through this valley, and into a patch of bushes where the tiger likely brought her to feed. They find virtually nothing left of this woman. It's the same. It's like what I just told you about the guy in Russia. They find blood, pieces of bone, torn clothes. They collect whatever they can, and they bring it back to the woman's family. And fortunately, it is enough for them to cremate. So productive day, if not a little grim. The next three days, not so much. Uh, the next three days, corporate stays in Polly. There's very few results in the search for the tiger, even using his extensive knowledge of hunting in the jungle. He really can't find the bitch. No, and especially I, because... Be what? It's like, it's a cat. How the fuck are you going to find a cat yeah, in the jungle? Yeah. Shit's elusive, Well, bro. that's the thing. Corbett is used to hunting in the jungle. He knows how to hunt in the jungle. Remember, we're in the mountains. Oh. So this is quite literally new territory for him. At one point, I don't know if you'd call it a result, but it's it's it's... New information about the tiger, at least. Um, there was another attack on two young girls. One of them was taken by the tiger. The other survived and ran back home. She unfortunately witnessed her sister being carried off by the tiger. And with her testimony, Corbett started to realize kind of a disturbing pattern. It was normally women and children who were easy prey for the tiger. That's because their duties usually entailed traveling into the forest to collect firewood and fodder for their animals like food for livestock and stuff like that so these were the people who would be most vulnerable to a tiger's attacks 
as from what he was able to glean from that glean? original glean, yeah, like, like, comp- like comprehend glean, yeah, <laughs> as to what he was able to glean from that original fight, it wasn't too much. They got there too late, so there was no trace of the tiger really to follow from there. So he's like, "Fuck, we're at a dead end." However, lead finally came with well, a couple leads, because there had been a couple rumors flying around that a town. 15 miles away from Polly, that based on the stories Corbett was hearing, it seemed that this town was the epicenter of the tiger's attacks and possibly her home. That town was Champawat. The Kumquat Tiger! tiger. We made it to (laughs) Kumquat! So we were headed to Champawat. Corbett gathered his original party that he brought with them and they immediately left for the town. Um, and this tiger hanging around one place, it's pretty in line with her behavior in Nepal, because remember, she hung around, um, RuPaul, and she kind of established, <laughs> stop, <laughs> I know, okay, look. Do you spell it like RuPaul's Drag Race? R-U-P-A-L, there's no extra U, RuPaul. I was gonna say, there has to be another way to pronounce no. it. God. Um, but <laughs> my it. point is, this is her pattern. She'll stay, she'll like base her operations basically in and around a small village and hunt in that area. On the way to Champawat, Corbett and co, they would often cross paths with like large groups of travelers. At first he assumed that they were pilgrims, but he kind of began to realize if they're heading to shrines and temples, they're going the wrong way. They're kind of out of the way out here. So eventually he uh, walks up to one of these groups and he asks them, why are you guys, all, I've seen a lot of you while you're all traveling together. To which they replied simply, the tiger. So she is menacing in this entire region. Some of these. They know. They know. They know who she is. Some of these men that in the group that Corbett asked, um, they had witnessed kind of a disturbing event two months earlier on their way to a market in Champawat. As they were walking there, they started to hear screams. So that drew their attention to the nearby valley where out of nowhere, a tiger materializes from the tree line and it's holding a screaming woman in its mouth (gasps) by the small of her back (gasps) and then disappears back into the forest. Oh my God. Yeah. Holy shit. Oh my God. God. Why would you put that image in my head? Sorry. A group of 50 or 60 men, um, some of them this time are armed, thankfully, not just one of them. They're armed with unlicensed rifles. They venture into the forest, and they were actually successful in driving the tiger off from its kill, which hasn't, that's a first so far. Did she live? No, it was too late, unfortunately, to save her. I mean, if you're dangling out of the four-inch claws of a tiger. The four-inch teeth of a tiger by your back. Sorry, teeth, not claws, but Jesus. Yeah. By just like your... I don't know if anybody has ever seen like, a cat play with a toy, but it looks like that. It looks like that. They're literally just playing with you. Yeah, they are. I mean, t- cats will play. play with their food. Cats will play with their food. Just really awful <laughs> to see. For fuck's sake, guys. I've Alexis's had cats. cat. Alexis's cat. Fully <laughs> the other day. Off topic. I don't know if she'll keep this in, but her cat, Polly, fucking just like found a cricket and was just tossing it. In and out of her mouth, just playing with it. Like, bitch, eat the damn thing already. It was worse because it was in the kitchen, which is, like, one of the only non-carpeted areas in our house. So I could see it. I could keep track of it there. But she has to pick it up and move it to the carpet and then just play with it more over here. Literally, I am in my room, and I just hear Alexis like, Polly, please, please, 
And Alexis hates crickets. Alexis really, 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 really hates crickets. I fucking hate crickets. It was so funny. It was not funny. I thought it was hilarious. I was just in my room playing Beatstar as she was playing with her food. (laughs) Like the goddamn Chompawat tiger. (laughs) Fucking hell, dude. She looks like a tiger. My cat doesn't do that. No. My cat just scarfs her food down. Holly's eaten like three crickets so far. That is nasty. Yeah. Well, she's getting protein, so I'm not too I'm not too worried about it. Oh, okay. Anyway, <laughs> that little non sequitur aside. So, <laughs> again, they drive off the tiger. They find the woman's body. Again, she's been killed. Um, and this was this was just something I wanted to include because it was kind of kind of sweet um so her her clothes were torn from her body and the men used some of their own garments they had to cover her so they could preserve her dignity and they carried her body back to her family in the village they're just telling corbett all this and he's like holy shit um well i'm gonna i'm on my way to kill that tiger and they're like no shit so they join up with him so now he's got like a whole crew with him corbett was kind of averse to this at first because he kind of had his mindset on uh, killing the tiger alone. Because again, even though he's like, I don't want to be a reward hunter or a trophy hunter, it still would be a big deal if you killed India's most deadly man-eater by yourself. Yeah, probably. Probably. Probably would be a really cool win. Yeah, you get some brownie points for sure. At least some notoriety. Notoriety. Notor. Hunchback of Notre Dame. (laughs) Um, So even though he wanted to take on the tiger alone... I think after his time in Pali, he quickly realized it would take the efforts of a community to hunt. And this was actually the traditional Kumauni fashion to hunt as a group. So just just no, guys, you shouldn't have to feel like you have to do things on your own. (laughs) You can ask for help. You can ask for help. You can totally ask for help. Men especially. I hate to generalize, but. So Corbett is coming up on Champawat with his crew, his entourage. Mm -hmm. However, the people especially of this town are very wary of him as a European because during the 1850, uh, 1857 rebellion, Champawat had a pretty, there's a pretty bloody history between the people of Champawat and Europeans that happened during the conquest of India. Um, so obviously they're not super thrilled to have him there. Yeah. Yeah. Not great. No. Uh, but he arrives on May 9th, 1907, and he has with him a letter of introduction from the headman, uh, the headman of Pali. He was supposed to deliver it to this guy known as the Tassadar, which is basically just like a headman of Champawat, but a more like official kind of traditional position. Um, he's not named in these writings. He just so, has the title? Yeah, just the Tassadar, which is really weird because him and Corbett actually kind of become homies. Oh. Okay. Yeah. He's nameless. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> he was going to deliver this letter to the Tasseldar to kind of it's like a like a voucher, like the headman of Polly is vouching for Corbett, being like, Hey, he's cool. He's legit. He's legit. It's like a letter of reference. Yeah, basically. It's so funny. So he delivers this letter of introduction to the Tasseldar and he permits him to stay not in Champawa itself, but in a bungalow just outside of the town. Okay. By this point, by the time Corbett has arrived here, the people of Champawat had been terrorized by this tiger for about four years. Not great. They've been dealing with this. The next morning, um, there was news of an attack that happened, not on a person, on a cow. A cow that was killed. It's elite, all right? A cow that was killed in a village uh, about 10 miles away. 
And Corbett immediately darted out of his bungalow, grabbed his shoes, grabbed his gun, ran off to this village, hoping that he would get there to get to the tiger fast enough. When he gets there, it's uh, a calf that had been slaughtered. Very sad. He's looking at this calf and he's like, um, guys, it wasn't the tiger that did this. (laughs) It was a leopard. The way he knew. He knew. (laughs) So, yeah, because when he got the news, they said it was a tiger. It was the tiger that attacked. Yeah. So he got there expecting to find signs of the tiger. Gets there and it's like, um, actually... A, a leopard did this, y'all. They're like, it was not the size of the teeth, <laughs> the paw size, the no, manner of killing. No, no, it no. was not tiger So they were all probably like, mm, oopsie. So he's like, ah, ah, nuts. He says that verbatim in the book. <laughs> no. Oh. It's like, oh, yeah. Oh, bother. Oh, rats. Man, oh, man. <laughs> so. What a waste of time in the morning. He's really bummed about that. He got back <laughs> He got back to Champawat by dusk. And that uh, that night that he stayed there, he was like plagued by nightmares about this tiger. Because she just kept eluding him. And again, it's really distressing to him because these the people it's attacking, he considers, you know, to be his... His, his homies. Con- yeah, his, ho- his homies, his countrymen, basically. The next morning, he wakes up and him and the tassels are kind of chatting, having a smoke, hanging out. And a runner approaches them. A runner? A track star oh. approaches them. Just, she's no, a like, runner, she's a track star. <laughs> so a runner, <laughs> like a messenger, basically. A runner approaches them frantically, and he informs them the tiger had struck once more, and it killed a girl. A girl. I don't know why I said A girl. <laughs> struck once more, and it had killed a girl, which confirmed to Corbett, at least, that the man-eater had indeed returned to Champawad. So again, wasted no time, grabbed his gun, grabbed his boots... Um, the gun that he was using was actually like a, a modified converted elephant gun. A what? An elephant gun. That was an elephant gun. A gun that you used to shoot elephants with. They used a specific gun for that? Yeah, elephants are big. This gun is meant specifically to bring down large game. Um, so he grabs his big old modified elephant gun and sets off with the Tasildar to the village this occurred. He chose this gun specifically because... It's not that big. It's, well... <laughs> It's not that big. It's not that big. It literally looks like the fucking thing that Jesse Eisenberg the, uses in Zombieland. <laughs> look at the cartridges on it, though. Look at the caliber. Oh, shit. <laughs> it's basically, yeah, it's like a really... Large it, caliber gun. Yeah, it packs a big punch. And he chose this gun because it would be able to stop a charging tiger. And Corbett didn't mind that he would leave big holes in the hide because, again, he wasn't hunting for sport. He was hunting to kill it. He also carried with him only three cartridges for this gun. This is uh, like a little habit he picked up as a boy because, for one, the high cost of powder and bullets, and two, because if a tiger or anything that large is charging at you, you're only going to have one or two shots at it anyway. So. Yeah, one, the one-two. Yeah, one-two, maybe the three for emergencies. So he knew that, you know, it, it's more, kind of more just efficient to only carry the three cartridges, which would be something he would regret later. <laughs> anyway. Don't spoil it. So they arrive at the outskirts of this village where the attack happened, and they're met by a group of frantic villagers. One of them tells Corbett what happened, Same thing as before. It was a small group of women and children who were collecting firewood near the forest when suddenly the tiger appears. Again, out of nowhere. She 
uh, went for a young girl who was out there and dragged her by the neck back into the forest. Witnesses to the event said that they had no idea the tiger was even nearby until it attacked. Uh, from the way that it, it sounded, some didn't even realize an attack was happening until the girl started to scream. So Corbett arrives at this kill site, much easier than he did at the last village. And the first thing that stuck out to him was that it was a very open area. And it was kind of unnerving that such a large animal could have snuck up on these people undetected with such an open area like this. He found the spot that the girl had been taken. All that was left was a pool of blood. And this is really sad. A necklace of beads Aww. that had been ripped off during the attack. So he follows the blood trail. He comes across her discarded clothes and strands of her hair that had caught in a bramble bush. He knows that he's on the right track. While he's uh, traipsing through the forest, following these tracks, he's got his gun ready at his shoulder, waiting for this tiger, wherever it is, because he knows that she's close by. Suddenly he hears footsteps behind him, and they're coming fast. Oh, God. He whips around. He pulls his gun up. He's got his finger on the trigger. And it's a guy. <laughs> oh, my God. It was a village official who was sent by the Tasseldar to help him out. Did he kill him? No. Oh, thank God. Corbett's like, Jesus Christ, dude. I almost put a hole in your fucking head. And he's like, sorry. I'm here to help, though. So <laughs> Corbett's like, all right, fine. So he's accompanied now by a guy. So the two of them are continuing along this blood trail. And they follow it, follow it down a steep ravine and through a, a creek that runs down the ravine. The man who was with Corbett was very clearly not a hunter at all in any kind of capacity. And he was growing very increasingly panicked about the tiger nearby. Any little sound, he would turn and be like, the tiger's there. I love conditioning. <laughs> it didn't help that they were traveling down. Again, they're like traveling down a little creek. There's water running. It's kind of um, drowning out any sound around them. So it's making it extra difficult for Corbett to focus to hear if there is actually the tiger somewhere nearby. So he's like, dude, chill. And <laughs> he tells him to... Uh, wait on top of like this stone spire that's nearby he's like wait up here you'll be safe here don't fucking worry about don't it don't worry i'll I come back it. yeah so he's like you're in my fucking way literally <laughs> so he leaves him there and he continues down uh this it's an increasingly steep creek as well he's continuing down this creek near the bottom he comes across like a stone hollow like a carved out area of rock and he's met with a pretty harrowing sight. There's pug marks and bone shards that are littered around. Nice. And he sees something that he doesn't recognize. When he kneels down to inspect it, he realizes it was the girl's leg. And it's been oh. severed just below the knee and is still bleeding. It's a, it's a, like a leg leg. Yeah. It's fully a leg. Yeah. How, what do you mean he doesn't Full recognize? Because uh, he, because obviously, look. If you see, you if don't, you, you're going to tell me what you don't know what a fucking leg looks no, like? if I've never seen a severed leg before, then yeah, I'm going to be like, oh, I'm, or at least my brain isn't going to immediately be like, oh yeah, Alexis, that's a severed leg. I I'm mean, not going to be able to rationalize was, it right Was, was the foot intact? I, I'm assuming. It just says it just, that it found it below. What a leg looks I like. don't know. I mean, he probably saw it from far away. He didn't really know what it was looking at. It was probably covered in blood. Okay, but it's in the shape dirt. of a leg with well, a foot. Well, I'm just saying, I probably wouldn't have... Understood it either. My that wouldn't be the first place my brain would go. I, I would not be expecting to see a human leg. I'd be like, that kind of looks like a leg. <laughs> I don't know what that is. I wouldn't. Is a leg. I don't know. 
that as he's kneeling to inspect... Potato, potato. <laughs> Excuse me? Potato, potato. All right. Tomato, tomato. <laughs> as he's kneeling to inspect this leg, he's suddenly... <laughs> he's suddenly overcome with this really intense feeling of danger and dread. And Ooh. instinctively... He spins around, brings up his rifle, and pulls the trigger. He pulled it? Yeah. No no hez? No no hez. On sight, bro. That's a waste of a bullet. Yeah. But he felt, he was like, there's, you know that feeling where like someone's standing behind you and it's quiet and they haven't said anything? Just like that feeling where you can feel someone looking at you. I think it was like that, but oh. time's a billion. Again, he's a hunter. He's got, his instincts are, are attuned. Not great if he thought one of them was a fucking tiger well, and was a human. <laughs> Not fucking great. Fair enough. But, so yeah. So what do you shoot at? Shoots. There's no tiger. What? There's only some tumbling rocks that are coming down from the ravine ledge <laughs> above him. And the sound of something moving through the bamboo. So she was there. Oh. She was ready to pounce on his ass. And he had just barely saved himself from being her next victim. So that's what he was sensing. He was sensing the tiger perfectly poised, ready to kill him and eat him. Feels like hearsay to me. Hearsay. I don't know what hearsay is, but it feels like that. Well, we know that it is because he spends the next four hours chasing her, and the whole time he's oh. hearing her crash through the forest and her growling. Nice. So, after these four hours running through the valley, he's forced to give up the chase because the sun is starting to set. So he's he heads back up to up the ravine. He reunites with this poor guy that he left up there, that official, and they hike back to the village. They didn't, she didn't get him. Nope. Uh. Also. Miss Chomp, I feel like, why was she running away from him? I feel like she could have easily just killed him. Well, she he did shoot at her. And I don't know if she was necessarily running away um, or if she just still had, like, her kill with her. And she was just trying to find some goddamn oh, piece to the, eat it somewhere. The rest of the body? Yeah. The full body without Sans one leg. leg, yes. <laughs> so, on the way back, though, as they're hiking up... Corbett kind of takes a second to take in the view. Aww. And he's like, hmm. Now, wait a second. And the gears start turning. Is there another leg? As No. <laughs> he doesn't see He doesn't see any more body parts. But he sees something else as he's looking out. He notices that this valley is almost set up like an amphitheater. Where it's like this steep ravine that leads down into a river valley. And around all sides are uh, like hilly peaks. So it is, and the only way out is through, um, I think it's like a trail or a creek or some kind of path that leads through a gorge on one side of the valley. Mm. So he's like, wait a second, I have an idea. He comes up with the plan to have a number of men set up along the entire length around this ravine. So they would be standing on the top of the edge of the ravine. Whoa, that's kind of big. Mm -hmm. He would need a lot of men, exactly. (laughs) That's the problem here. I'm thinking, wait. What's a ravine? It's like, um... How big is a ravine? A ravine, it can be big or small. Normally, it's not, like, super huge. A ravine, think of it as, like, just any kind of formation that slopes downward, basically. But, like, not big? How not big? super. The, it doesn't really specify, from what I read, how big it was, yes. but at least a decent amount of men. It's a pretty decent-sized okay. river valley, so... so... Like, maybe more than 20. More than 20, yeah. Okay. So, he thinks if we can set up a ring of men all along the top of this ravine and they start making noise and coming down the slopes into the ravine that will drive the tiger 
from these dense lowlands at the bottom and towards towards the only other way out of the valley, which is that little gorge on that one side where Corbett would be set up waiting with his rifle. Nice. This is similar to the plan that they tried to enact in Nepal four years back, which worked so well. (laughs) (laughs) But he's like, yeah, so he's like, we have to corner the tiger. That's pretty much our only option at this point. They head back to the village. Corbett goes to the Tasseldar and he tells him his crazy plan. And he's like, I need numbers. I need manpower. I need bodies. I need men. And I need a lot because this is a pretty monumental task. And the Tassildar is kind of vague about whether he can actually supply the numbers he needs, but he's just kind of like, well, let me see what I can do. So night passes, sun comes up the next morning. Sometime in the interim, um, him and the Tassildar agreed that they would meet beneath the tree where the girl had been taking the next day, the, the day before. And whatever men the Tassildar was able to wrangle up, they would meet them there as well. So it's May 12th, morning of May 12th, 1907. Corbett's waiting beneath this tree. Almost time for the war. Almost time for the war. He's waiting beneath this tree. He's expecting the Tasseldar to appear with some number of men. He finally shows up. He sees them coming up to him, and he's like, oh, thank God. He arrives around 10 a.m. with a whopping one man with him. One? One guy. I said at least 20 guys. Oh, we're, we're down a few. We're down at least 19. At least 19. <laughs> so Corbett's what? like, fuck. One. So, One? yeah. The tassel door's like, I brought, I brought some more. <laughs> and he's like, well, can he multiply? Because, bro, this is not going to work out. This is not going to cut it. One. One. But One. to Corbett's surprise, on some, like, Avenger shit, People come up more him. of them oh start showing God. up. That's so dramatic. More and more. <laughs> that is so dramatic. And like twos and groups slowly start start joining them, and their that numbers so are almost three hundred. Whoa, that's and more than twenty. And they're all armed with outdated but still operable weapons that they've okay. dug up that they've had hidden. Okay. This is the first time since the eighteen fifty seven rebellion that the people of Champawat or really any like number of Indians have openly carried weapons. Oh. Oh, wow, this is like monumental. This is yeah, this is a big deal. Wow, this they're really, tiger. They're really, really, they really are pulling united all against Dude, this that's tiger. So funny. Like the fucking Avengers, <laughs> they're like one by one, like coming up over the hill or something. And super dramatic. The Tassadars like Champawat assemble, and they all start showing up. That is so funny. Many of these oh, that men tiger does not have a chance. No. And especially because many of these men had lost loved ones to this tiger. Oh, this tiger's getting fucked. There was one guy there who had lost his wife and both his sons to the tiger. Did, so what? his whole family. Wait, so how come we're only talking about the woman getting killed? What about all these other fuckers? They were probably little boys, I assume, maybe. When, I don't know. when were all those people eaten? Uh, I don't know, sometime, eventually. Because, again, she's killed 200 people in Nepal, and she's at 236 now in India. So they're somewhere in that 236. Yeah, guys, just... Just so you know that though we were talking about two two ladies, two right? We talked about two ladies, mm-hmm. two. Mm-hmm. Um, there are about I don't know three hundred ninety eight. <laughs> we're not talking about. Jesus. There's a lot of them. There's a lot of these. A lot, a lot, a lot of them. Who unfortunately, at least from what I read, are you know nameless in these sources. So, yeah. but yeah, these are people's you know friends, family, mothers, daughters, sisters, wives, brothers, brothers. <laughs> Do you know that? Hey, mister. She's my, my sister. sister. 
<laughs> anyway. <laughs> Moving on from that man who lost his whole family. Um, <laughs> Corbett explained this plan to them. And they're like, oh, hell yeah, dude. Got it. And they set off to their positions along the ridge. Corbett says that he'll give them a signal. And once he get, uh, he'll give them a signal once he's in position. And once they receive that signal, they are to start banging drums, screaming, thrashing bushes, making as much noise as they can to drive this tiger towards Corbett's position. Dude, their strategy is so much better than Kasagaki's. <laughs> Straight up. This is an organized attack. Literally. This is so much this better. This is so much. It's taking so much manpower. Kasagaki, one guy showed up and he was like, I'll take care of it, guys. And he... He ended a week of terror in two days. Yeah, but, like, the men of Kasagaki, like, the area, remember they all just, like, huddled together yep. and just all sh- fucking couldn't fucking make a line. Make a firing line and just go. Yeah, things oh. are a little more organized Thank here. You. All right, yeah, I see you. <laughs> go off. So, Corbett is accompanied by his homie, the Tasseldar, and they make for the mouth of this gorge. On the way up, the Tasseldar momentarily stops to fix his shoes, and he stops just long enough for the men on the ridge to kind of become antsy, and th- they're like, fuck, Corbett forgot the signal. All right, guys, let's start. Wait, so what? they prematurely set off on their part of the plan. Wait, 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 wait. So... He was just tying his fucking shoe. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know how quick it is to tie your fucking shoe? <laughs> Bro, you just do the loop-de-loop and pull. It's and not that. Your shoes are looking cool. And they're like, nope, he must have forgotten the signal. Huh? We gotta go. Huh? Huh? <laughs> yeah, I don't know how long it took them, but apparently long enough for these guys to be like, well, time to go. Never mind. I think like, not that organized. <laughs> not that great. I mean, to be fair, they're all like really anxious to, to kill this cat. So yeah. I can imagine yeah. they're like, ooh. Gotta get him. Gotta get that. Gotta get that. <laughs> So suddenly the ravine, the valley is ringing out with the sounds of rifles being fired, drums beating, men are shouting. And she didn't really waste their, you know, They're ammo. tossing boulders down oh. the sides of the ravine. They're boulders? throwing spears down into the middle of this valley. They are doing everything they can to get this cat out of there. How do they know she's in the valley, though? Because I think that, um, I think the blood trail Corbett followed brought him back there. And that's where the tiger ran off when he tried to chase her. Okay. So. Okay. Well. And well. this is the kind of area that a tiger would inhabit, because again, it's a mountainous region, but this little river valley has enough like undergrowth for her to hide in comfortably. Well, so not that comfortably. basically, <laughs> basically, if there was going to be a tiger anywhere around Chapawa, she was going to be here. Got it. So, Corbett's like son of a bitch. So he scrambles to get into position. He's got no time to find a uh, perfect hunting blind. So he just settles for a place with cover and an open view. He's like, this will have to do. He also knows he will have a very small window to shoot his target uh, because she would be running towards him, charging. And again, tigers can run in short sprints of up to 40 miles per hour. Mm -hmm. This is also a very large cat who is going to barrel past you regardless of... If you don't move, she's going through you (laughs) one way or another. So he's like, I'm not going to have a lot of time. I have to really really make sure I get this right. So these men continue to make their clamor coming down into the ravine and the tiger shows up. Corbett spots her about 300 meters away and she's running down. She shows up like a little bit higher up than he thought she would because she's running down the slope of the gorge towards him. 
the Tasseldar is <laughs> so the Tasseldar is like, don't worry, Jim, I got this. And he takes a shot at the tiger, misses, but got close enough that the tiger does stop in its tracks. As she turns to retreat, Corbett fires off another shot at her, but misses. Oh. Yeah. So the tiger retreated back into the ravine, into the direction of the beaters, who are the guys making all the noise, mm-hmm. which is also not great because, again, she's a man-eater. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> You don't want her going in the direction of men. Um... Now, these beaters, having heard the gunshots, they assumed Corbett had killed the tiger. So they were... Rejoicing? They were rejoicing. <laughs> they and broke like, out woo-hoo! into premature hooting and hollering, celebrating, we cheering. They were also firing the last of their ammo reserves into the air. Oh, no. <laughs> oh my God. Thankfully, though, <laughs> the sound drove the tiger back in Corbett's direction. So she's just being ping-ponged back and forth. I feel really bad for this tiger because she's probably so scared. Well, she's about to get fucking murdered. Yeah, and it's just like, there's sound, again, and these these animals are tuned to hear everything. They can hear a, a fly blink. The fact that all this sound is happening around her all at once must just be like a sensory nightmare. So yeah. she's panicking and it's it's just... Oh, it's just awful to think of like an animal having to spend its last few hours in fear. It's awful. So she's running back in Corbett's direction. Corbett sees her moving along the bottom of the valley. He lines up a shot. He fires. And he does hit her. He hits her somewhere towards the back of her body. She instinctively spins around. Corbett manages to remain concealed from her sight because he's sitting in some tall grass. So she doesn't see him, mm-hmm. but she's facing him. This little about-face move that she did, though, does give Corbett a perfect line of sight for a kill shot. So he shoots, the bullet rips through her shoulder and into her chest. But she does not go down. Oh. She's dazed, and she, in her daze, she jumps across the stream at the bottom of the valley onto, like, a, a little rocky outcropping on the other side. Corbett makes his way down to get closer. He prepares his third shot, pulls the trigger. Nothing happens. Because remember, first shot he fired at the tiger coming down him in the gorge. Mm-hmm. Second shot, he hit her towards the back. Mm-hmm. Third shot, he hit her in the shoulder through the chest. Mm-hmm. Those are his three cartridges. <laughs> so he reaches into his little ammo pack and he's like, fuck. <laughs> that third one was supposed to be my emergency shot. So he's out of ammo and he's looking right at her. He's literally, he, could, he can't be like more than a hundred yards from her at this oh, point. Oh, I shit my pants. Yeah. So he's like, oh my God. And uh, his only option. is to fight. Hand no. Hand <laughs> Honestly, at first when I read that, I was like, well, fuck, what's he going to do now? Throw what his is? gun at her? What, what's going to happen now? But he remembers Tassadar only shot at her once. He still has ammo. So he has to shout further up the slope towards him to bring him his ammo or oh, his rifle. He's expose themselves. He, yeah. But the clamor of the, the beaters and the tiger roaring in pain actually kind of drowns out the sound so he can't hear Corbett calling to him. Oh, no. Yeah. So this means Corbett has no choice but to leave his cover and run up the hill to the Tasseldar. So it's one thing to just shout, and obviously there's a whole lot going on, so the tiger didn't really notice that. She's defo probably going to notice him jumping out of his his grass and running up the hill. Yeah, probably. So he's like, I've got to be fast. So he drops his empty rifle. He sprints 100 yards up the hill, unarmed, in the open, 
towards the Tasseldar, his fucking lifeline right now. As Corbett approaches, Tasseldar tosses him his shitty ramshack rifle. Because <laughs> again, these are old weapons that have not been fired in a long time. Once he has it, he sprints back down the gorge towards the tiger. In Corbett's book about this, in his memoir, it's really funny because uh, as he's like lining up the shot with this gun, he's like, well, it didn't explode when he first fired it, so it probably won't explode now. <laughs> So he runs back down the gorge with this gun. He leaps across the stream, the same stream that the tiger did, goes up to this outcropping that she also jumped up on, and they are face-to-face on this rock ledge. They, he estimates that right now they're no more than 20 feet apart. Oh my god. Yeah. Oh my god. Uh-huh. Despite being mortally wounded, this tiger is still plenty lethal. She's got at least one good fight left in her, and that is just enough to kill Corbett if he doesn't, if he doesn't do this right. So they're standing there face to face, looking at each other. She opens her mouth to roar at him. And it's in that moment, Corbett realizes the unfortunate circumstances that brought them both to where they are now. Both of her upper and lower canines on the right side of her mouth are in shocking condition. The upper canine is snapped in half. Whoa. The lower is completely broken off down to the bone. What? This is believed to have been an injury from a bullet wound years ago. So again, she's been killing people for eight years. She's had this wound for at least that long. Obviously, and I'll talk about a little bit more later, if a tiger can't hunt her normal prey, she's going to go after what's easier, which people are pretty easy. We're slow. (laughs) We're soft. We're soft. We can't hear that well. We can't really see that well, at least compared to a tiger. We have no instincts. No. (laughs) And all the other contributing factors I mentioned earlier with colonialism. Again, it's just... It, it makes sense. It makes sense that this would happen. Um, Corbett does say in that moment that he did feel bad for her because he was like, this isn't... You know, she was very much made. She didn't just become a man-eater just to start eating people. So he he does feel... He does feel for her, but he knows. He's like, I got a job to do. I still have to do this. So he pulls up his gun. He's aiming for her mouth, pulls the trigger... Misses horribly. Oh. He shoots her. Gun? Yeah. His shit gun? Yep. Why didn't you just take the ammo out of the gun and put it into his? I don't know. <laughs> That's a really good question. God. Um, he shoots her. He does end up hitting her, but he hits her in the right paw. Okay. This, however, is enough for her to stumble. So she finally falls. And the last two shots that he hit her with were fatal. It was just kind of taking some time. She falls into this like big striped heap her head is hanging over the side of the rock ledge she stops breathing jim corbett has successfully killed the chompawa man eater that is so sad it's really sad no wonder your mom didn't want to be (laughs) all i could imagine is just like a dead tiger yeah it's really sad sad. i know so it's not i especially in in corbett's writing it's not like this big triumphant moment he writes about where he's like yeah i did it i killed the tiger it's like a really sad quiet reflective moment that he has um so he for a little bit he's just kind of like sitting there with the tiger like shit fuck i killed this beautiful beautiful wonderful miracle of the forest and i'm gonna fucking go to hell because of it this event actually did kind of shake him for the rest of his life um, I mean, yeah, if happened. you're making such an impact where you're killing such a big, big thing. Yeah. Unless you're like a heartless, cold fucking monster <laughs> that like literally harvests big animals. Yeah. But like, 
Yeah, if you're but, just like a normal person. Yeah, and he loved tigers. He loved the forest, and he respected them. So it's like, big bummer. Yeah. So like me killing a manatee. Oh my god. I'd be so so sad. But if it was a man eater, though, you know, you do what you gotta do. I, I guess you gotta do what you gotta do. But these manatees eat like lettuce. They do. They eat seagrass, which we have to take care of because it's disappearing, and that is their food. And we have to make sure they have food because they'll die anyway. Non sequitur, I used to have like a really weird. Do you ever remember? Were you ever like in a swimming pool and like your brain would start to visualize a shark in there and you were like, oh my god, it's gonna get me if I don't get out right now? And you'd have like kind of a mini panic in there. Okay, well, I would, but instead of a shark, <laughs> I had this image of a manatee. <laughs> <laughs> opening its mouth to bite me and i don't know why i love manatees um as a previous competitive swimmer of i don't know how many years no that was never a fear of mine my fear was always um diving into the pool and smacking my face against the floor which did happen a couple times ow wow yeah, goggles smushed on my face. Not fun. I used to think that pools were connected to the ocean. You're so I thought that no. like jellyfish oh. jellyfish could swim in through the filter and I would get like stung and go into shock and die at any moment. Maybe you should have tried harder in school. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, I didn't know how to swim until I was like thirteen, so I was already scared of the water. Um anyway. Okay, Aquamarine. <laughs> Fucking pool to ocean pipeline. So Corbett's having his moment with the tiger. Uh, Tasseldar joins him eventually. And they just kind of... He's Tasseldar's kind of in the same boat as Corbett, where they're both just kind of like sitting there in quiet vigil. Little moment. The beaters appeared shortly after, and they are completely frenzied and overcome. One of them shouts that they should, quote, hack it to bits. Oh which... God. disturbs Corbett in that moment. He's kind of taken aback by that. The disrespect. Yeah. The man who lost his whole family to the cat, he cries out, this is the shaitan that killed my wife and two sons. Shaitan is uh, like a, a demonic entity in Islam. Um, Corbett and the Tasseldar do manage to kind of pacify the crowd. And I think uh, it's just like, you know, a moment of... It's a, it's a significant emotional moment. So there's just a lot of... You know, high emotions. High emotions, yeah. Between so, like anger, anger, relief, sadness, grief, happiness. It's, it's a lot. So I could I could understand. And Corbett and the Tasseldar do manage to calm them down, pacify them. And according to Corbett, the man who lost his wife and sons was actually the first to lower his weapon. They lower the tiger down from the rock ledge, and each man who's there just kind of takes the opportunity to see her up close. So it's it's this really, it's a really special moment because they're all just sort of standing around this tiger who's done all this damage to them, and they're just seeing it as a tiger. Like it's not a monster, it's not a demon, it's just a tiger. They uh, the men there requested that Corbett not yet skin the tiger. This was um, this was like a, a privilege reserved for the person. Um, the hunter who killed the tiger, mm-hmm. but they asked him not to skin her yet because they wanted to carry her body through the villages so they could show that she was dead, that this four-year reign of terror was finally over. So they haul her body out of the ravine. On the way up, they're singing like these ancient hymns together. Uh, Corbett and the Tasseldar traveled back to the village together on their own, and on their way back, they actually end up spotting the smoke of the funeral pyre for the last girl killed by the tiger. 
which how poetic is that? <laughs> Holy shit. The same day that they killed the tiger, this family is having their their funeral ceremony for the last girl who was killed by the tiger. Okay. That's pretty... A little crazy. serendipitous. A little, a little serendipitous. A little... I don't know. It's just interesting. It's like a... It's just a connection. So back in Champawat, Corbett skins the tiger. He was permitted to keep the head as well. This is, again, was keeping with that custom of the shikari, the hunter who struck the killing blow, was entitled to both the skin and the head. He donated the body to the villagers, and they had a big old party that mm, night. Yeah, celebration. Tiger. <laughs> tiger meat. Mm. Um, and Corbett didn't participate because to him, he felt like this wasn't his victory to celebrate, pretty much. Because he was like, it's not... I wasn't personally victimized by this tiger for four years. I was literally going to say, he was not Raise your hand if you've ever felt personally victimized. victimized by the Chambawat tiger. So, yeah, he's like, I don't, you know, it's, it's for them. It's their night. I'm just going to chill. Because he was also thinking about, um, he was like, well, job done. I've got a job at the railway I've got to get back to. <laughs> literally. He's like, I need to get back to my job. Um, but that night before he leaves, he has one final smoke with Tasseldar, who, again, he considered a friend at this point. And um, he asked that he take his place at the head of the table during the celebration because he tells him that he deserved it more for his part in it. So again, Corbett departed alone the next morning. The men who accompanied him from Nainital, they were going to meet up at another village along the way. So he takes off, he leaves. On his way back, he makes a stop at Polly. And he presents the family of the girl whose sister was taken with the hide of this tiger to show them. Um, in his official report to the colonial government, he also included the efforts of the men who helped him kill the man-eater. Which, when you think of, you know, a British guy being like, hey, these the Indian people who helped me were a really big part of this and they need to be commended. That's pretty major. That's a little slay. Kind of slay. Uh, the Tasseldar and Corbett were presented with engraved rifles the official who accompanied the Tasseldar, who I think is the same one that snuck up on Corbett in the jungle at one time, um, he did also receive a gift. He received an engraved knife. Nice. In total, if you're keeping count, the Tigers of Champawat is estimated to have killed approximately 436 people across two countries in the span of about eight years. This figure could potentially be higher because, again, in Nepal, attacks weren't super well documented. And there are chances that whatever numbers were being logged by the colonial government at this point weren't taking into account others. It's a very real possibility that this number is potentially higher. But this makes her the single most deadly animal in human history, which I think is a record she still holds. Um, she's in the, I want to say she's in the Guinness, World, the Guinness Book of World Records for being the deadliest animal in the world. I don't anticipate anything could be deadlier than 436. That. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty major. Like so, no other animal I think has the capacity to kill like that. Yeah. And speed that quickly. That's very true. So after all this happens, Corbett would gain kind of a celebrity status following this hunt. Oh, slay. <laughs> slay. Uh, the colonial authority would continue to call on him for years to come to deal with other man-eaters that inevitably emerged in the tigress's wake, stuff like leopards and other tigers. So he's kind of like their Batman right now. <laughs> Every time a man-eater pops up, they're like, Jim, 
Uh, he continued in this role until his final man-eater hunt in 1938, when he was 63 years old. 63 and he was still going at it? He was still going. Jesus. That Irish blood. They're a hearty people. <laughs> well. He is believed to have killed about 30 serial man-eaters in his lifetime. And I think it's uh, the total number of like problem big cats that he's killed is around 50, I think. Mm. He remained in his position at the railway... What? He yeah. just had like a fucking just side had job. Had a day job at the railway. He's just Dude, a he's railway. He's literally Batman. He's like actually fucking Bruce Wayne. That is so funny. He's the race of the railway. Railway worker by day, man eater hunter by, by night. night. <laughs> and yeah, he would take leave whenever the government would call on him for a hunt. So he'd be like, boss, I need to. I, I need, need to, to go take for- a. I need to go fulfill my fucking civic duty. <laughs> I get PTO for like the next two weeks. And he's like, oh, why, Jim? And he's like, well, there's a, there's a leopard killing people. And he's like, oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, no worries. <laughs> you need to get that approved through HR. Mm-hmm. Um, Corbett was often asked to help um, in sport hunts that were held by the government. They would hold these for like prominent officials who would visit. And having Corbett there, not only to organize the hunt, because again, he's a skilled hunter and tracker, but also as, you know, it's like a a guest star, a celebrity appearance by Shut the famous up. Jim Corbett. It Shut is. Up. So like visiting, <laughs> visiting officials would be like, holy shit, is that Jim Corbett? Is that, is that Mr. Jimbo? <laughs> he gained social, he gained entry to social clubs, high society parties. <laughs> he ended up crossing paths with Elizabeth II. What? Queen Lizzie II. Dude, this Which man. all of that would have been far out of reach for a poor Kumaun-born son of an Irish postmaster, but Jim made it, so... He did it. Congrats to Jim. Good job, man. He published his memoir... Uh, what? His <laughs> memoir? <laughs> he, I don't know what happened. He published his memoir, Man Eaters of Kumaun, in 1944, and it pretty instantly became a bestseller. Now, for the reception held in New York City to celebrate the book's American release, Corbett was actually not available because oh. he had contracted an illness um, training troops during the war. What? Yeah. Because remember... He was in the war? Yep. It was in... Yep. World War One. <laughs> World War Two. It's oh. 1944. Oh. Well, um, he started in 1907. Yeah. So he was probably in the First World War. I think he was, actually, if I remember right. Dude, the He fought in both world wars. Like, can you involve a story that doesn't, maybe, I don't know, include one of the wars? Next next week's doesn't, but okay. you won't be on my own side. <laughs> Great. <laughs> the only one without the fucking war. So, um, but he wasn't available to be at this reception because I, I want to say it was like malaria he I got actually. Say, he probably got malaria. Yeah. So he wasn't able to make it. Damn. Um, Did he die from malaria? No. He, oh. he lived for a while. Um, so instead, in his place, uh, his publisher flew in a couple of captive tiger cubs to autograph books with their paws that had been painted with fluorescent ink. Dubious. Did he kill him at right after? I don't think so, but just uh, dubious morals here, I would say. <laughs> I definitely wouldn't be okay with that. That's really kind of confusing. Yeah. Like, hey, guys, here's a book on this guy um, who kills big cats for a living. Anyway, you want your um, book signed by, by, by a big cat? By a big cat child? Um... This day, one day, this cat that signed your book can also be killed by this man. It's really... It's like a two-for-one. Fucked up. It's a two-for-one celebrity moment. <laughs> Jesus. 
yeah. the intensity of it all. And the intensity of it all. My God. Fuck you, Brits. Uh, along with all of these honors that were conferred on him by the British colonial government, the Indian government also granted him uh, a special honor known as the freedom of the forest. This Ooh. allowed him to freely hunt in any protected forest he wished. And being a hunter, he would take advantage of this. So he, he was still hunting up in there. What do you hunt? Like, did, did a lot he, of stuff in India. Well, like, did he hunt outside of, like, having to? Like, hunting bad boys? From did he ever hunt, like, for good reasons? I don't know, honestly. From what I can tell, because it, it seems like he did enjoy hunting, and at first it was just for, like, survival, subsistence, to feed his family. Yeah. Um, I think possibly, like, trophy hunts, sport yeah. hunts were okay. part of his life later on. But okay. Um, Freedom of the Forest. That's pretty cool. That's sounds pretty like video cool. Game. That sounds awesome. It does. Freedom of the Forest. Now, Corbett was always, his whole life, a pretty humble and reserved man. And uh, even despite this, though, whenever like people would you know, build up his myth, he wouldn't stop them. So he, he didn't actively like cultivate his myth, but he wasn't opposed to it. He accepted okay. his fame. Yeah, yeah. Alleged- good for him. Oh, good for him. And allegedly, he never used his status for personal gain. So... I mean, except for the freedom of the forest. <laughs> yeah. But, you know. Well, interestingly, this is, a, this is a twist. Corbett, despite having built his reputation on killing big cats, specifically tigers, his entire... His, his whole brand. His reputation began with killing a tiger. In the last about 20 years of his life, he was a passionate proponent of a wildlife conservation in India, specifically of tiger conservation. Very interesting. Very interesting. Well, I mean, to be fair, he didn't want to kill the Champawat tiger. No, and like I said, that killing the Champawat was an event that left kind of a traumatic mark on him. Because yeah. he did have a respect and admiration for tigers that was really rare among British colonials in India. And ahead of before he even started the hunt, after he was contracted, he had his own reservations about killing the tigress. Again, he was disturbed to hear the beaters clamor to want to tear her apart after her death. And... After this happened, he actually rarely hunted tigers for sport during his life. He generally only actively hunted tigers that had become serial man-eaters. So he still had a lot of respect for tigers. And it's possible that he may have felt partially responsible for his role in the destruction of India's tiger population. Yeah. Obviously, he had a position early in his career of harvesting wood for the railroads. He would be contracted or requested by the government to organize these large-scale tiger hunts for visiting dignitaries. At the time of the Champawat's death in 1907, there are around 100,000 tigers living in India. By 1946, Corbett himself estimated that their numbers had been depleted to less than 4,000. What? Oh, I can see his guilt. Yeah. I can see his guilt. He's got some mega guilt, I think. But the thing is, like, I guess it was a mix between, like, Contributing by building the railroad, one. Yeah. Two, also indirectly because he's like, ah, his reputation is built on like, ah, fuck you, tigers. Yeah. But that's not the message he wanted to come across. No, not at all. It's kind of just like what ended up happening. Yeah. Do you think they would have put the Champawat tiger in like a zoo if they could? I don't know. That's interesting because today, I'll talk about it more in a second, but today... Um, India is really dedicated to the conservation of Bengal tigers. and well, Yeah, they're fucking depleted. They're depleted as hell. And they do, it is required by their court that if there is a, a problem tiger, they have to first try all efforts to tranquilize it before making efforts to kill it. 
So very, very good approach. Mm, good approach. I agree. Very I like that. Approach. Like, dude, this this homegirl. Ah, uh, you know what? This girl killed a lot of people. I don't think <laughs> a lot. I don't. I don't know if everyone would be on board for her being in a zoo. Yeah. <coughs> I don't know. She can draw a lot of crowds. Be like, oh, oh yeah. People would try to fucking yeah. take her out. Yeah, at that's, the zoo. that's true. Actually. Jesus. Christ. Um. So, it's not a win. No, not a win. Not a win for anybody at this point. Now, Corbett did take advantage of this network he had accumulated of high society acquaintances and government officials, along with his actually uh, new burgeoning career as a wildlife photographer and filmmaker to further the cause of tiger conservation. So he made he made a lot of gains for tiger and wildlife con- conservation in his life, which is really impressive considering, obviously, what he did earlier in life. He would eventually leave India in December 1947 following the dissolution of the British Raj in India at long last declaring its independence from colonial rule. He and one of his sisters moved to the last of Britain's colonies in East Africa. Now, Dane Hucklebridge, he speculates that the reason why he left was that Corbett was simply unable to adapt to the world changing around him. And he sought out wild frontiers rather than comply with the rapid progression of society that was characteristic of the post-war world at this point. Bitch, you built the, you built the railroad. You, built you the literally railroads. were the most acclimated. One source I read that posited that he just couldn't imagine or abide by an India that was free of British rule. Mm. So he didn't want to live in an India that was no longer part of the British Empire. Oh, interesting. Very interesting. Again, (laughs) he was a a British guy in India in, you know, the early 1900s. So complex, complex character. I'll say that. And I mean, being, you know, British Indian was his whole identity. So I think he kind of saw India leaving the British Empire as like a... He's like, well, I don't belong here. Yeah, like his own identity was probably, he felt was compromised at that point too. Um, Him and his sister end up staying in Kenya until April 19th of 1955 when Edward James Corbett died due to heart complications in Nairi, Kenya at the age of 79. He never married and he had no children, but he did leave behind a pretty considerable uh, legacy. The following year, 1956, the Haley National Park, which was India's first national park and one that um, Jim actually helped to establish, so it's located just outside of Nainital, where he grew up and lived. Uh, it was renamed the Jim Corbett National Park, and it's still there today, and you can still visit. Corbett helped to bring the plight of wild tigers and all rapidly disappearing wildlife in India at this point to the attention of the public. And his memoirs and photography and film helped to inspire a generation of tiger conservationists at a time where they were very desperately needed. After leaving India in 1947, Corbett would never return again. So he died having never uh, seen his home again, Aww. which is sad. But So what about tigers today? A little precarious. <laughs> tigers today, according to a 2019 census, there are approximately, so that was the, the most recent I could find, um, there are approximately 2,967 Bengal tigers left in India. Whoa. This is the largest population of tigers anywhere in the world. What? And it's less than 3,000. The Bengal tiger population in India accounts for more than 75% of the world's total tiger population. There are populations numbering less than 1,000 that live in the neighboring countries of Nepal, Bangladesh, and Bhutan. 
And even though some populations have seen slow growth in the past few years, particularly in Nepal, uh, the IUCN, which is the International Union of Conservation of Nature, who's the one who has the you know list of endangered wildlife, they list the global population trend as decreasing for tigers. Where are they all going? India, in the last 100 years, has lost 97% of its Bengal tiger population. Oh my god. In the last century. This is happening due to a few things. One deforestation and habitat destruction. Because of this, they inhabit about less than 7% of their historic range now. And this deforestation habitat destruction is driven by human encroachment. So building things like agricultural fields, farms, homes, roads, parking garages, etc., etc. Parking garages. <laughs> you know. And of course, climate change. Hotter summers, wetter monsoon seasons, making very difficult conditions for anyone to live in. Um, there was historic flooding that occurred in India and Bangladesh last year that displaced millions, so you can only imagine what that also did for wildlife. My face is very sad right now, guys. Uh, yeah. My face is just like, pouty mm, yeah, Damn, that It's sad. It's really sad. Um, smaller areas of habitation for tigers leads to inbreeding and reduced genetic diversity, which is unfortunately also working against them. There's also poaching, Fuck poachers. This Who is the fuck still poaching. People do still poach, which Why? is amazing to me. What are you poaching for? They're poached for trophies, like their skin, fuck off. head, bones, paws. Fuck all the way off. Yeah. I, this is not a poacher safe space on this podcast. If you're a poacher, Dude, fuck for you. Dude, what reason? There's literally no... Oh, sorry. I'm no. getting mad. No, no you're mic. fine. Get mad. Get, yeah. There's, <laughs> there's literally no fucking reason. No, Hard not. F. Hard G. There's not at all. For, to, to poach. No. Like those fucking people <laughs> on like Tinder or TikTok or Instagram that are like fucking holding up giraffe I, heads. I hate that so much. Well, the, the guy who killed Cecil the Lion, he was a dentist from like Detroit or some bullshit. Like, huh? You're not a big man because you killed an oh. animal with a high-powered rifle from a hundred meters away. Shut up. Shut like, up. Like, people that are just like posted up with like a fucking giraffe. <laughs> It's not cool. It's not sexy. It's not cool. It's not sexy. It's not powerful. You look like a fucking moron. <laughs> you look like a moron with that giant ass rhino on your back. It doesn't look cool. It, it doesn't looks look good. It looks embarrassing. It looks embarrassing. You should be embarrassed. Kind of sad for you. What are you compensating for? Hmm? <laughs> really, really embarrassed you. Because I'm fine with. Honestly, I'm fine with hunters who it, when it's, it comes to like subsistence hunting and to control um, populations. Yeah. Because too much of any type of population, predator or prey, can have really devastating effects for an ecosystem. And sometimes yeah, hunters like can help that. Yeah. yeah. Surgeons, deer, Sergeons. wolves. This helps them. When it comes to trophy and sport hunters, you're not doing so shit. Majorly fuck you. <laughs> Absolutely fuck you. Like, if you're like. Oh, don't worry. We give the meat of the elephants to the people. I don't care. You're still... Kill, kill a fucking deer. Kill a deer, literally. Kill a deer. You're still killing, and for one, usually endangered animals for funsies. For fun. It literally doesn't make any sense. No. I want to... You know how Anthony Padilla has, like, sit down and talk to, like, like a kidnapper? Yeah. I want him to do... Sit down and talk to a, a poacher. poacher. Uh, sorry, not a poacher. A trophy hunter. <laughs> Shut the fuck up. The only poachers I like are my eggs. <laughs> that was a good one. Thank you. I'm going to do an episode on Cecil the Lion and the trophy hunting I industry. Guess. So I'll, 
I'll save the rest of this convo for that. Sorry, guys. <laughs> no, don't be sorry. Just edit this into that one. <laughs> but yeah, they're poached for trophies, skin, head, bones, paws, and for sports, as well as for uses in traditional Asian medicine, which science has proven does not do anything, doesn't work. There's increased human and tiger conflict that is driven by these factors as well. Uh, India is the second most populous country in the world. And larger populations mean more encroachment, more encounters between people and animals. In 2001, tigers were responsible for the deaths of 19 people in and around Chitwan National Park, which is Nepal's largest tiger reserve. At least one of these tigers was a definitive man-eater. It was a single tigress who was responsible for five of these 19 deaths, and she was known to consume at least one of them. From 2021 to 2022, tigers Uh, Tigers averaged three human kills a month in Nepal. Tigers kill about 40 to 50 people annually, which sounds like it could be a lot, but this is actually a pretty small ratio, pretty rare for an animal this size living this close to people, Mm -hmm. especially compared to other animals. Elephants are responsible for around 350 deaths annually. Nice. (laughs) Great. So tigers aren't doing too much, but, you know, it's... Being killed by a tiger is a little more exciting than being killed by an elephant, so people are going to focus on that. I don't know. Being killed by an elephant. <laughs> being killed by an elephant is also pretty exciting. But. And tigers will usually attack people only out of defense. They turn to man-eating if they become too old, too wounded, or too deprived of their usual prey. The Indian government, as I kind of mentioned, has really committed itself to tiger conservation. In 1972, they passed the Wildlife Protection Act, They created Project Tiger in 1973, which is an organization that's dedicated to the conservation of Indian tigers. They've established 50 tiger reserves since its inception, and this project is still active today. They also, uh, the government also created the National Tiger Conservation Authority, which aims to minimize human-tiger conflict through a set of guidelines that dictate how to reduce the overlap of human and tiger territory. Stuff like uh, buffer zones near national parks, so areas where tigers and humans shouldn't be. These guidelines also include steps to take should this overlap result in threats to both people and animal. They advise that problem tigers should be tranquilized and relocated, or in the case of a man-eater, which they now refer to as, not man-eater, but as dangerous to human life, is the verbiage they use. If it is a man-eater, they recommend that it be removed from the wild um, and relocated to a zoo. They stress that euthanization should be taken only as a last resort. The Indian Supreme Court requires that efforts to tranquilize the animal must be made before deciding to kill it. Now, some wildlife biologists and activists have argued that the current model for trying to segregate, trying to segregate human and tiger populations is ineffective because um, this model focuses on habitat conservation without necessarily taking into account human interaction with these habitats and the species in them. This is seen most evidently in Nepal. Now, Nepal has done a really good job of recovering its tiger populations, but this has, uh, these efforts have mounted a human cost. This is because impoverished communities rely on resources from the forests that they're unable to afford, things like food and fuel, so they have no choice but to risk venturing into tiger territory. The eradication of malaria, strangely enough, also (laughs) wasn't a great, uh, I mean, that's good, but some negative results from this. The eradication of malaria from Nepal's fertile southern floodplains, which was a key tiger habitat in the early 20th century, has allowed more people to inhabit the region. 
So now you have fewer humans in smaller communities in that area, particularly the Tharu, who I mentioned at the beginning, who had developed a resistance to malaria and were able to peacefully coexist with tigers. The growing human population has reduced their numbers and habitat today. And once these tiger reserves were established in the area, tiger populations rose, which was good, but along with them rose human-tiger incidents. Somewhere along the line of all this happening, that indigenous knowledge that the Tharu had, um, these customs and traditions that allowed them to live peacefully with these cats, was lost. So a lot of um, biologists and activists are really pushing to recover and implement indigenous knowledge. I keep saying the Tharu coexisted pretty, pretty well with tigers in one of their densest habitats for many, many years. This is because the Tharu practiced shifting agriculture, so they would use slash and burn, the slash and burn method to cultivate their crops. This also maintained the ecosystem of the grasslands and also helped to create a clear view of the forest, which helped both species keep track of each other so that no one accidentally snuck up on each other, tiger or person. The ban on human activity in these tiger reserves, though, has prevented the grasses from being cut, and this leads to more encounters because of this reduced visibility. Losing their access to the forest has led to the Tharu losing their connection to it and sharing valuable knowledge from one generation to the next is no longer possible because of that. So it seems that the way ahead, as is the case with a lot of conservation methods for both species and uh, habitat, is found in indigenous methods and knowledge. So hopefully, I couldn't find anything recently about whether any of this is being implemented, but I hope, truly, truly hope that it is. Now... What can we do today to help tigers? Because I know that all sounded pretty bleak. <laughs> I'm going to give you a couple of places to check out that I'm going to uh, recommend. Um, one is Wildlife Conservation Society. They're focused on global wildlife conservation. They're based out of New York. They're actually the organization behind the Bronx Zoo, the Central Park Zoo, the Queen Zoo, Prospect Park Zoo, and the New York Aquarium. Why are you laughing? <laughs> Why are you laughing? Go ahead. Speak your truth. Anything can happen <laughs> in the Bronx. There's also uh, pan. <laughs> There's also panthera.org. They're a really cool website. Um, they are dedicated to the conservation of the world's 40 species of wildcats. And they work to educate people about the precarious situation of wildcats worldwide. They fight. Um, they help to fight illegal poaching operations. They protect the habitat of wild cats and their prey. Since 2006, they have been educating people about cats and all the ways that they can help. So check out panthera.org. There's also uh, Wildlife Protection Society of India. They were founded in 1944. Their mission is to combat India's growing wildlife crisis. Uh, crisis. <laughs> their mission is to combat India's. India's growing wildlife crisis, and they are actually very involved with several anti-poaching organizations, so yeah. we were also getting really angry um, while we were, I would check out, I would check them out, Wildlife Protection Society of India. Um, there's the Hyderabad, I think is how you say it, Hyderabad Tiger Conservation Society. This is an India-based conservation organization. Part of their mission is collaborating with indigenous communities to further the goal of conservation, so what I was just talking about, definitely look them up. There is Tiger Trust, which is a non-government organization. They're a nonprofit dedicated to protecting tiger populations worldwide. I also found one um, called the Canopy Project. They're based in Bangladesh, and their focus is on restoring 
uh, mangroves in order to support the various ecosystems that rely on them and restore their environment. Tigers also very heavily rely on mangroves in this in a, in uh, Bangladesh. I didn't know that. Yeah, mangroves are like marshes here. They're very um, biodiverse, very important. Yeah, mangroves are cool. Mangroves are cool. And there's also Project Tiger, like I mentioned, um, which is established by the Indian government. And they have a lot more resources online that you can look at, too. So all those places listed, things we can do, donate, check them out, learn, educate ourselves. And, you know, the Tigers of Champawat, despite being the most prolific man-eater of all time, she was not a monster. She was not a serial killer. She was an animal that was desperate and pushed to do desperate things because of colonization because of people she had been shot at she was injured and because of that she couldn't hunt her normal prey so i want everyone to come away with this not blaming the tiger not trying to think that all tigers are evil or killing machines they're not they're animals and animals will do what they have to do to survive which is what she was doing and with that i want to say one last thing the Parting thoughts of a a really great article I found in Smithsonian Magazine. It's called Tigers at the Gate. I'll include it with all my sources. It was written by a guy named Jim Doherty. And he says, quote, But the fact is, those who live cheek by jowl with tigers every day of their lives understand far better than the rest of us that, in the long run, a world with them is infinitely preferable to a world without them. Yeah. It may be as simple and as complicated as that. Yeah. End quote. Yeah. So that was the Champawat Tiger. The Kumquat Tiger. The Kumquat Tiger. <laughs> Again, sorry, this took a little bit. Sorry. Um, it's <laughs> My bad. It's, it's all me, guys. It's not Ari's fault. It is. It's, well. It's not. It's not. Te- it's not. It's technically, <laughs> it's not like technically, it wasn't my fault. <laughs> <laughs> it was someone else's fault. It was someone else's fault. Not my own. So yeah, just, um, but my fault. I'm sorry, guys. <laughs> it's okay. I apologize for this taking this long. Life happens. I appreciate you guys for being patient with me. Intercurrent um, life much. events. Am I right? <laughs> so yeah. Um, and as as a little, I'm sorry, consolation gift <laughs> from me to you. I'll tell you. <laughs> Uh, next week's episode is going to be about the one, the only Chris McCandless. I so, know who that, I know uh, that is. Uh, <laughs> for those who know, no. Those who you know, you know. Get excited. For I'm those gonna, who don't, I'm going to talk about Chris. Don't. So. <laughs> um, yeah. So I hope that you guys tune in to, for that. And um, that will be that will be next week. And it will be on time. <laughs> Sleep well. Sleep well. Thank you for tuning in. Love tigers. Donate to tigers. Live, laugh, love. Live, laugh, love tigers. In Gaia we trust. Woo! Goodbye, everybody. Bye.